Hello and welcome to Media Made, the show in which we year by year explore the movies, music, and TV that most invaded our lives. I'm your host, Rod, and I'm joined by... Jazz. And... Jazz. Hey, it's 1988. <laughs> hey, what's up, 1988? 1988, new year, new me. Well, same me. Well, almost. Yeah. I was conceived in this year. <laughs> That's a, that's a... Wait, no, I wasn't. Yeah, no, yes, yeah, I was. Yeah. yeah, I was. Well, nine months. It's 40 weeks. <laughs> possibly. You were possibly... Well, since my youngest sister always tells me that I'm a birthday baby. Oh. My mother's birthday. <laughs> anyway, um, hi. <laughs> uh, Shut that so, yeah, A lot of uh, TML, right? No, the TMI. TMI. A lot of TMI uh, for our first, first time listeners there. Hello. Oh. Hey, kids. Hey, so if you uh, are new to the show, let me explain how this works. So Jess and I, um, we're married. And, uh, as <laughs> Disclaimer. Like, yeah. He's so, off the market. As like a, uh, a couple's exercise, we decided to take a look at the list of movies from every year, uh, from 1985 to 2015, and, and so on. Um, take a look at every movie released that year, and not watch all of them. That would be terrible. Crazy. Yeah. I'm sure some madman has done that. But what we do is we, we decide which movie each of us had wa- watched the most in our lives. Yeah. And then we watch them together because it's a fun little couples exercise. We get yeah. to see the media that made us. Oh. Get it? Oh. So, yeah, that's that's what we're doing today. We are kind of just taking an in-depth exploration of the movies of 1988 that each of us had seen the most. Yeah. Um. One, I will say that couples exercise, we did not start this when we were married. We started this not when we were married. We could have started this even as friends. So if you have people that you want to try this with, don't. Don't encroach on our market. This no. is us. No, no, no. I, <laughs> I encourage you, do it. Go If you if you have a loved one, doesn't even have to be a spouse or a... a, a Somebody you... You don't even have to love them. Your best friend, maybe. <laughs> it, it can be your enemy. This is how you get closer to that neighbor who keeps, yeah. you know, ringing your doorbell and running away. Yeah, you... You find out that you and your mortal enemy have both watched The Brave Little Toaster the most <laughs> in 1987. Um, so that's, that's what we're doing today. Yeah. Uh, it's 1988. We are uh, going to be talking about the movies in 1988 because, yeah. hey, we have shows on music and TV as well. Yeah. I think that actually uh, this is the first year that we like went harder with the rules and said that it, ha- it has to be it has a theatrical release for movies. Yeah. No, no, no. We, we said theatrical or... VHS, like like a home it release? It could be a TV movie. Yeah, a TV movie is different. Yes, so yeah. there will be no DCOMs in the future. No Disney Channel original movies. Even though we both know, in this household, the best Disney Channel original movie is Teen Beach Movie. Oh, gosh. <laughs> We're not going to be watching that. We're not going to be watching uh, the weird... Teen Beach Movie 2. Teen no. Beach Movie 2. No, what, what what's that, sh- that that channel that does the weird... Lifetime. The weird Lifetime, Lifetime movies. Uh, no Lifetime movies. My- my son's invisible, or my imaginary <laughs> son. <laughs> I'd watch that. I would. Well, not the imaginary that, son. One sounds sad. That's and a real scary. movie. Oh, is it? It's real. Oh. You can look up the the trailer. On I don't YouTube. want to. Anyway, that's what we're doing, and uh, yeah, we're gonna start off with Jess's movie of 1988 today. Hey, hey, hey! And uh, hey, stick to the end. We get to decide which one we thought was better. Yeah. Um. All right. So tell everybody what was your movie of 19. 19- it was, in fact, Who Framed Roger Rabat. Released June 22nd, 1988, starring Bob Hoskins, Charles Fleischer, Christopher Lloyd, and Joanna Cassidy. Directed by Robert Zemeckis. 
we have Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Ooh, it's quite a quite a garish, bombastic uh, theme music there. Yeah, so um, that would be the intro music to... It's like the first sound you hear when you jump into Who Framed Roger Rabbit because it's a movie about classic animation. Yeah. It starts out with a with a like a old timey cartoon short like your Tom and Jerry's or your your like Bugs Bunny cartoon starring a cartoon rabbit named Roger Rabbit. Yeah. Would was he the star? Yeah. It's okay. It's like it, in it, that cartoon? I think in this cartoon <laughs> it was like one of those like double double headers, you know? Mm. It's it's a Roger Rabbit and a Baby Herman cartoon. Mm. Baby Herman is a little baby that Roger Rabbit has to protect um, from all of his dangerous uh, appliances. Yeah, um, his and, cookie getting. Before we get into like the facts and the meat of the movie, tell us why is this movie your movie of 1988? Honestly, I think it's surpri- It's not surprising that it's my movie of 1988. But it's surprising just because it scared me so much. I'm surprised that I watched so, it So you that did watch much. it as a kid? I did. I, the first time I watched it was as a child. And then I watched it again. I don't think I watched it again as a child. I watched it as an adult more often than not. Or I may have seen it as a child amongst family and just like left the room for the mm. scary part. Because that sounds like something I would do. Yeah. <laughs> I, uh, I, I surprisingly had never seen this movie before becoming an adult. Huh. I, I think the first time I watched it was... It was either streaming on Netflix and I was like, oh, that's a movie I've never seen. Or uh, maybe I heard someone talk about it on a podcast and I was like, yeah, I should watch that. (laughs) And you want to take a guess on what my actual first experiences with Roger Rabbit were? Like the first time I even like saw Roger Rabbit or Jessica? Lunch Pail. No. Oh. No, it it was actually Disneyland. Oh, Oh, that makes sense. Yeah, there's a Roger Rabbit ride and like I remember going on – because you go to Toontown in Disneyland, it's like – you go to Mickey's house, and you go to Minnie's house, and you jump in the ball pit. Don't let your kids in the ball pit. <laughs> Cabrona. <laughs> like, yeah, no, no. Since, since like, the 90s, they've shut down the ball pit. <laughs> you can't go to Chippendale's ball pit anymore because it's gross. And I bet, like, keeping it sanitary and, you know, the janitorial staff, hey, like, salutes to you. <laughs> mm, did their best. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, yeah. Anyway, that, that, it was all, you know, it was like Mickey and Friends was mm-hmm. Toontown. But also there was like a Roger Rabbit corner. And <laughs> Roger Rabbit was as much a star as Mickey, Minnie, Donald, and Goofy. That's fair. Yeah. So, I, I vaguely remember that. So that's that's my first experience as well. Yeah. Rabbit. I forget about Disneyland. <laughs> and anything that has to do with it. I love Disneyland. It's just a shame they charge so much. Oh. Uh. Why does it charge so much? <laughs> Leave my wallet alone. Um, all right, so let's let's get into the movie. Um, so with these movie episodes, uh, it, it it just ta- we we can't unpack the entire movie from start to finish. So no. we're gonna we're gonna like pick apart a few like topics. But before that, we can kind of introduce you to the characters and kind of the plot yeah. of the movie. So let's. If talk- you want the whole movie, maybe we'll release a commentary yeah possibly <laughs> um so yeah tell tell us what, what who are the characters in the movie who are the stars well we have the titular roger d rabbit who was framed i didn't kill anybody i swear this whole thing's a setup a 
It's more or less the the, the point of the movie. Roger yeah. Rabbit's a cartoon character, and he's been framed for murder. Yeah. Uh, we have an honorary detective uh-huh. named... Eddie Valiant. Eddie Valiant. Tunes. He just says tunes under his breath and takes a big swig of whiskey. Which is a thing he does yeah. often. Um, we have spouse to one Roger Rabbit, Jessica Rabbit. No relation. I'm not bad. I'm just drawn that way. <laughs> That's an iconic line right there. I don't, she's not bad. She's just drawn that I way. I don't like it in my ears without seeing it. <laughs> I didn't like that yeah. feeling. Who else do we have in this movie? We have the Weasel Gang. Okay, yeah. yeah. We have... Uh, um, a very New York cab. A Benny the cab. Benny the cab. Oh, I got Benny the cab. Ah, that's better. I can't believe they locked me up for driving on a sidewalk. Come on, Eddie, get in. It was just a couple of miles. I'll drive. But I want to drive. No, I'll drive. I'm the cab. I <laughs> yeah. I just had a moment. Isn't the cab driver... In Halloween Town, also called Benny? He might be, I don't know. If, if we, you recognize the voice of the cab, it's Benny the Cab and Roger Rabbit are voiced by uh, Charles Fleischer, hmm. who also voiced the guy in Back to the Future Part 2 that goes like, Oh man, I wish I can go into the, you know, I wish I can go back in time and put some money on the cubbies. <laughs> As, you know. I've, I've never seen that movie. Yes, you have. <laughs> <laughs> Getting a little loud on that side of the table, honey. Um, also, we have uh, Sir Acme. Marvin Acme? Dead Acme. Yeah, Mar- Marvin Acme. <laughs> right, we're getting kind of into the the, like, the oh, plot of the movie. And then the judge. Yeah, the judge. Judge Doom. Is this man removing evidence from the scene of a crime? Ah, uh, no, Judge Doom. Uh, Valiant here was just picking it up for you. Weren't you, Eddie? Speaking uh, of uh, Back to the Future. Yeah. Uh, Christopher Lloyd plays Judge Doom, the, the villain of the movie. Um, as far as plot goes, basically it's 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 your your basic hard-boiled detective story, but with cartoons. Yeah. I forgot about Patricia. <laughs> Was that her name? I don't know. Del- Dolores. Dolores. Is Eddie Valiant's dame. Yeah. His floozy. His love, excuse you, <laughs> his love interest. Yeah. And they don't kiss, so they yay. They don't. <laughs> So basically, Roger Rabbit is framed for murder of a uh, a gentleman by the name of Mar- Marvin Acme. Marvin Acme is the, the the property owner of Toontown, where all the cartoons live. Mm-hmm. And Eddie Valiant is a hard-nosed detective that is hired to help Roger clear his name, figure out the, the, the who, who really killed this it. guy. Yeah, it's, it's a whodunit. Yeah. It's, it's, your, it's your Sherlock it's an- Holmes, your... Dick Tracy. It's your Annie, are you okay? (laughs) Marvin Acme was struck by, he's been struck by, a smooth criminal. (laughs) And then in the the shadows you have like, you know, miscreants like Judge Doom, his weasel gang. Yeah. And uh, even even Jessica Rabbit, the spouse, uh, who's just like lurking in the shadows. You don't know whose side who's on. Lots of red herrings. There's a... That other guy that wasn't working for Acme that wanted to sell his maroon cartoon, maroon cartoons, um, and that that's that's the basic plot of the movie. Yeah, you want to talk about the history? Because I do. <laughs> Have at it, my love. <laughs> All right, so um, 
Who Framed Roger Rabbit has a very interesting history. Yeah. Um, I, I was flip-flopping between doing segment one on Roger Rabbit or holding it off to segment two, two. because ultimately Who Framed Roger Rabbit was produced by uh, Walt Disney in their Touchstone Pictures production company. Mm. Um, and I kind of wanted to like, should I get into the history of, of Walt Disney animation? But we're going to hold off on that. Yeah. We'll put a pin in that. We'll come put back to it. Put a pin in it. Um, really, the, the history of Roger Rabbit really started in 1981 when American author Gary K. Wolf published a very unique crime novel called Who Censored Roger Rabbit? Yeah. Gary K. Wolf was a, was a science fiction writer. Uh, Who Censored Roger Rabbit was his fourth novel. Um, he had written only science fiction stories up until that point, and then he was like thinking about, well, what do I want to write for my, my fourth novel? Well, why don't I combine my two loves? Crime stories and cartoons. So... Mm. Um, I highly recommend listening to uh, the interview that Gary K. Wolf did with the Laser Time podcast. Mm -hmm. um, it's a pop culture podcast, and Gary K. Wolf came on just to describe his experiences not only writing the book, but then working with Disney to get the movie made. It's very interesting. It's it's a really fun listen to. I highly recommend it. That's where I get all this, a lot of this information. But anyway, Gary K. Wolf had a really, really hard time getting the novel published. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, he did. So basically what happened was he wrote the fourth novel and he sits down and he's like, oh, this is the best book I've ever written. This is great. Uh, sends it off to uh, his, his publisher. They, they bring it back to him and say, hey, we can't publish this. And he's like, but why? It's the best novel I've ever written. Don't you agree? Oh, we agree. <laughs> the problem is we, we had to send it to the marketing department because it's so strange. And they were like, oh, we can't market this. <laughs> so Gary, he, Gary told the story that he actually called the marketing guy and said, hey, what, what's going on? And he's like, well, if you think about it, like, where would we put your book on a store shelf, right? It's not quite a crime story. It's not quite a children's book. It's not quite a fantasy book. It's, it's, it's all topsy-turvy. We mm. can't publish this. And he's like, well, let me ask you a question. If I had written The Wizard of Oz and given it to you, would you wouldn't you have the same problem? Well, yeah, I guess I would. And, and it, he just got nowhere, right? Yeah. So he ha he basically sent it off to various different publishers – just and, somebody and, take yeah, it. They, he got rejected like over a hundred times or something Oof. like that. Yeah. Oof. Oof. My literate soul. Um, but one, like, it was like a stroke of luck. He sent it to St. Martin's Press, right? Mm. And apparently one of the editors there had just successfully, like, got a, um, a, a bestseller, a New York Times bestseller published, right? Mm -hmm. So St. Martin Press told this one editor... As a reward for giving us a New York Times bestseller, you can publish any book you want. Work on any, and she, I guess, was friends with Gary K. Wolf, and she's like, "Well, I want it to be this book." And her, I'll do anything for love, but I won't do that. That her manager said, "I won't do that," <laughs> and she's like, "You let me publish this book, or I quit." Ooh. and he, they let her do it. That is friendship. That's yeah. the kind of friend. Yep. That we need. <laughs> and and so luckily Gary K. Wolf got his book published. And uh, so before it was even published, someone at St. Martin's Press, and he, he still to this day does not know who it was, sent the manuscript to Disney. Mm. Disney and, himself? Uh, Roy, Roy Disney, yeah. Okay, okay. So, yeah, because uh, Walt, Walt had passed away by, uh. by this point. But yeah, um, he got a call from then-president Ron W. Miller... Um, who saw potential in a Disney-produced adaptation of Who Sensed Roger Rabbit. So he and Roy Disney secured the rights from Wolf, 
and in the in that podcast interview, Wolf had said that if he if he had if he could figure out who it was that sent the manuscript to Disney, he'd kiss him or her right on the mouth. <laughs> <laughs> Please just ask first. Yeah. <laughs> um, and 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 so there, there you go. Um, Disney was kind of in a weird spot historically, and we'll get into that a little later. Um, needless to say, they were looking for a hit, and they thought, "Hey, this this looks like a hit. It's a little bit darker. We want to, you know, we want to bring back the animation magic, but we also want to bring in some of the older kids." Like this was when they were working on the Black Cauldron, uh, you know. So they were trying to make more adult, well, you know, yeah, uh, content or movies. <laughs> the face he made, he really dislikes Black Cauldron. It sucks. <laughs> and it's such a shame too. That movie, like the books they're based on, are great. Mm. Um, but anyway, so Roger Rabbit was like perfect. I, it was perfect idea, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, no. Since we're talking about the history and how uh, Disney bought the book, the rights to the book, and they wanted to make a movie, I would like to say the movie is very different from the book. I say this as a person who has not read the book, but who has watched a really uh, great um, video about it. Uh, if you go on YouTube and you look up Dominic no- Noble. Um, he has a video called Who Framed Roger Rabbit? Lost in Adaptation. He has a whole series called Lost in Adaptation where he tackles books that were turned into movies and he like talks about how what the plot of the book was, then what the plot of the movie was, and then discusses the differences between them, the things they had in, the, uh, had in common, the things they completely took out. And the things they changed. And he does it all in a, in a wry British accent. And he does. This one actually um, is on the shorter side. A Who Framed Roger Rabbit is only 15 minutes. But, whoa, it is packed. It is packed, kids. Like, uh, I'm not going to go fully in, uh, into a lot of it. I really think you should go ahead and watch it. I, I'll say some stuff um, that I can remember off the top of my head. But uh, it is originally called Who, Who Censored Roger Who Rabbit. Censored Roger Rabbit. And <laughs> Roger Rabbit is the heel. <laughs> um, where if you plan to listen to this, uh, if you plan to read the book, spoilers, close your ears for two minutes, unless you don't care about spoilers. But uh, essentially in the book, um, someone is murdered and it is blamed on Roger. And he meets up with um, Valiant to try to clear his name. That is more or less the same. Except it's not the owner of um, Acme. It is his wife's ex-boyfriend. And he totally did it. Oh. <laughs> and Doesn't Roger die at some point in the book? Roger dies at the beginning of the book. Oh. So there's a thing. like So in, in, in the book, um, cartoon characters don't talk like um, you see in the movie. Yeah, it's because it's, the book is less based on like classic cartoon animation and more on comic comics. strips. Yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. So in the book, how they how they don't um, the cartoon characters don't work for an animation film. They work for um, a like newspaper. So yeah. they will say their lines and Spe- talk, speech bubbles yeah. pop up around their head. Someone takes a picture of that and that goes into the newspaper. That goes in a comment. Like that's how they do their work. There's like a big problem throughout the whole book. Um, like it's like littering because the speech bubbles happen and then they just fall to the ground and nobody cleans them up. So it's just like word litter everywhere yeah. and stuff like that. But a thing that tunes have the power to do is like make a sort of like ghost version of themselves. That's not what it is. I can't think it's like, it's a double, um, like a doppelganger or whatever. So they can be in one place and they're like, I got to go to the store. And they just kind of make a copy of themselves to go to the store. And it can last anywhere from five minutes to about two days as long 
for a long time. So um, in the book, basically what happens is um, they find Jessica's ex dead and then they also find Roger dead. And so the cops are like, oh, Roger killed the ex-boyfriend then killed himself so that he wouldn't figure it out. But then his double shows up and is like, no, I didn't do it. Help me. And so um, they're trying to figure out instead of who framed, um, who censored. I don't know why it's called who censored, actually. Anyway. because it's, it's funny. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. Um, but, and I'm not going to give away, like, <laughs> what what why and what happened but like seriously go watch the video go watch the video yeah disney's making this movie um the problem is they don't know how they're supposed to approach this because hey the we, book is not child friendly right it's like one they have to rewrite the whole movie like yeah. basically like rewrite the story so that it's more disney you know so that and that's, less dime store novella that's yeah. not what it is and, and then they have to like tackle the the hurdle that is we need real people to be able to interact with tunes, right? Mm-hmm. How do we pull that off? <laughs> um, we hire a wizard. They they did eventually <laughs> hire, uh, essentially hire many wizards. Um, so, funny story, Robert Zemeckis, the, the ultimate director of Who Framed Roger Rabbit, actually offered to direct in 1982, but Disney declined because his previous movies, I Want to Hold Your Hand and Use Cars, we're box office bombs. And I'm like, that's okay, Robert. We don't want your help. <laughs> um, well, thanks for the offer, boy Yeah, their, their tune changed when um, he released Back, Back to the, to Future, the Future and Romancing the Stone, who were humongous hits. Mm. And like, oh, Robert, yes, come on in. You said you were interested? Come on, buddy. Yeah. Speaking of Back to the Future, listen to... If you, if you haven't already, listen to Media Made Episode 1. Yeah. <laughs> 1985. And uh, then comment on that or tweet us... That I won. <laughs> Don't do that. Uh, <laughs> so at that point, the project went through various test phases of, over the next several years. Um, between 1981 and 1983, Disney developed test footage with a with a man named Daryl Van Kitters as animation director. Um, mm. And he they they put like it, it's on YouTube. You can actually see it. It's like this test version of how Roger Rabbit would actually work, mm-hmm. right? And it's like. You know, just a small scene where Roger Rabbit is talking to Eddie Valiant, and they're like walking through like a like a seedy uh, alleyway in a city somewhere, right? And it it looks more or less like what Roger Rabbit would become, right? And mm-hmm. and they they realized early on, in order to make animated characters in the real world look realistic, they have to be moving things and interacting with the world around them. So yeah. they were able to manipulate like trash can lids because, you know, uh, cause he jumps on. Yeah, it exactly. Just like that. Yeah. Um, you want to guess who voiced Roger in this test footage? Was it good old Robin Williams? No. Okay. It was Pee Wee. <laughs> Paul Rubens himself. Okay, bye. <laughs> anyway. so the, the issue is like this test footage is like very impressive, but Disney's like, we need to make a whole movie with this. <laughs> that's impossible, right? Or that's like too much, mm. right? Um, Gary K. Wolf told a story on that podcast that apparently they called him and said, hey, um, we might not use actual cartoons. We might just have like all the tunes be co- uh, costumes, <laughs> like Disneyland costumes. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, that. Oh wait, that's just the labyrinth. Like yeah, worse though. Yeah, so much worse. Like imagine if Eddie Valiant is like just hanging out with a giant like 
Ruka? Yeah. It, it would just be Harvey. It would just be Harvey. Yeah. Go Harvey's watch Har- so good. Go watch Harvey. Go watch Harvey. <laughs> um, so it, it was a big mess, right? A few things changed in the mid-80s where, like, progress actually started to get made, right? Mm. Michael Eisner joined Disney in 1984. Um, <laughs> you were going to say it. Say what? Petty. No, 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 no. <laughs> That's J- Jeffrey Katzenberg. Oh, okay. Michael Eisner brought on Jeffrey Katzenberg, petty a-hole. <laughs> <laughs> I saw you go, mm, and I was like, ah, this is the catchphrase. But Michael Eisner was like the the executive guy. He he was like Hollywood executive, the man, right? Oh, wait, yeah, yeah, yeah. So he, he came and he was the one who jump-started TV animation. Like, he was the one who told Disney TV animation, hey, let's make gummy bears because my kid likes it. Stuff like that. Oh, we talked okay. about that in our 87 TV episode with DuckTales. Gummy bears? Yeah, gummy bears. Care bears? No, gummy bears. Disney's Adventures in Gummy Bears. No, 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 sir. No, I don't know what you're talking it's, about. It's it. It was like it's a, not a thing. No, it was. No, it's not a thing. Yes, it was. I think you mean Care Bears. It's Gummy Bears. I think you mean Care Bears. They're here and there and every day, everywhere. You're making up songs. <laughs> <now>. <laughs> yeah. What is this? I've only seen Gummy Bears like twice. Like, <laughs> but that's the theme song. Gummy Bears. Mm-hmm. Care Bears or Gumby? I think you're mixing them up. <laughs> you could do a triple feature. No. G- Gumby, Care Bears, and Gumby Bears. <laughs> Gumby Bears. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, Michael Eisner comes in. He says, we need to like, this This project seems like it'll work. We need to get it started. Um, but more importantly, a little man named Steven Spielberg joined the project. Okay. <laughs> he, he is a very short man. I've seen him once. Oh. Yeah, I saw him at E3, the video game convention. I was walking down and I see a bunch of like dudes in suits, like uh, like handlers, right? Like mm-hmm. bodyguards. And they're like clearing the crowd, like out of the way, out of the way. And I was like, okay, these guys are definitely escorting like a VIP. Who's the VIP? And I, I'm, I'm like eye level, right? I'm like five ten, five eleven, right? I'm like, I'm not, a, I'm an average sized person, right? Mm-hmm. And these guys are like a little bigger, so like I'm trying to keep an eye line. I'm trying to look amongst these men. I look a little. I have to like angle myself down a little bit, look down, and I see a little Steven Spielberg. <laughs> he is, he's a short man. Well, short in stature, great in. Reputation. Yeah. Uh, influence. For the 80s, at least. Oh, no, for a long time. Uh, at least, in, like, up until the, like, the early 2000s, like, he was, like, height of the power. We, we would like to say that Steven Spielberg was at the height of his powers here in the, the late 80s. Yeah. Um, until, like, just in our show, we've looked at 85 through 87. He's produced Back to the Future and American Tale. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. He wasn't involved in Labyrinth. He was not involved in Labyrinth. His, his good friend George Lucas was. Hook is coming up. Yeah. <laughs> Why? I was, my brain Steven like... Spielberg had a lot of influence. Anyway, so Steven Spielberg came in citing his love of like... Home Alone. <laughs> no. Citing his love of like classic animation, you know? Like mm-hmm. he, he, he loved old Disney. He loved lo- old Looney Tunes. And he was like, yeah, this sounds like a great project. I'm, I'd love to be involved, right? So anyway, you bring Steven Spielberg involved, he's going to get stuff done. Right. So he offered Amblin Entertainment to like help produce the project. Um, and he like helped pull a lot of the strings, right? And I found this interesting. He was working on this movie with Disney at the exact same time he was working with Don Bluth on American Tale. Oh, so he's like across enemy lines, like <laughs> in the same in the he's same a scab. Yeah, but he that's the thing. He doesn't like <laughs> nobody cares because he's Steven Spielberg. Yeah, yeah. I guess it's kind of just like. If you have a paramedic, you're like, no, nope, the doctors need it on both sides. <laughs> Shut <Yeah>. up. <laughs> Immunity. That's the thing. Steven didn't play with these rules. He was just like, ah, I want to just do stuff that I think is cool. Yeah. Fair. 
I'd do that. Yep. That's that's it, really. Um, they 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 pu- I'll I'll talk a little bit about the technical aspects of actually making the movie in a second. But yeah, like for the most part, it's like Steven Spielberg came in, he brought Rob Zemeckis back in, and they got to work. I guess most importantly, they brought in uh, animator Richard Williams to be to direct the animation portion mm. of the series. He he was well known for uh, pretty much working on the uh, the Thief and the Cobbler. Movie. Oh yeah. Yeah, he had been working on the Thief and the Beautiful. Cobbler from like the sixties on. Yeah. On and off for like thirty years. Um, until it was like wrestled from his hands mm. and and released without his wishes. Yeah. So you you may say, Oh, I remember watching the Thief and the Cobbler in the nineties. It was not his vision. <laughs> yeah, I should probably watch the 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 release the, version the, that's what he wanted it to be because i always liked the yeah the like the, so there's the the miramax version i believe is what it is it's oh. the like actual released version um a bunch of like animation nerds have put together something called the recobbled cut it's on youtube in full i believe and it's just like using like you know line tests and, and animatics and stuff in order to like re assemble what his vision would have been yeah um it's it's janky but it's like more or less what his what it would have been. Yeah. Um, it's, it's good. All right. It's fun. Sounds good. A lot of good animation in there. <laughs> um, so yeah, Richard Williams famously, um, had said basically like, I think he was talking to his animation team and they're like, this is, this movie is impossible. We can't do this. He's like, it's not impossible. It's just really, really, really hard. <laughs> um, that kind of upbeat yeah. attitude. He, he, he was, I, I think like everybody involved is like, played a very, very important role in the making of this movie. But I think Richard Williams was, like, the glue that held it all together. Mm. Because he was the guy who, like, had to help Robert Zemeckis, like, make decisions on set so that the animators, like, months later could then insert the animated characters in In there seamlessly. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, like, it it was, like, an all-star team. Yeah. Let's talk about this movie. Okay. Um, (laughs) So something the book did that the movie kind of adopts was... Trying to meld, like, basically making Toontown and, like, the world that these characters live in be populated by well-known cartoon characters, right? Yeah. In the book, I think it's a bunch of, like, comic strip characters all co-mingling together, right? Again, I haven't read the book. I assume, like, Archie and Pig yeah. Pen. Pig <laughs> Pen. Spider Pig. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I, I don't, yeah, I'm not, I'm not a comic book guy. The, the Peanuts? Yeah. Um, uh... The Hobbs, Garfield, Hobbs and Calvin. Anyway, yeah, you know what I mean. <laughs> it's comic strip characters, but if you're gonna make the movie when it's like more focused on like classic animation, they needed to have Toontown be populated by classic cartoon characters. Right. The movie was already made by Disney, so we had you know Disney. They had their bases covered. There was plenty of Disney in this movie. Mm-hmm. Kind of jumpy, aren't you, Valiant? It's just Dumbo. I know who it is. I got him on loan from Disney. Him and half the cast of Fantasia. The best part is... They they work work for peanuts. peanuts. (laughs) And he feeds Dumbo some peanuts. I'm just thinking, half the cast from Fantasia. Did he just get all those brooms? To oh, the, the broom, the brooms are in the movie. Yeah, I know, but yeah. he's just like half the cast. It's just like, what are you using the brooms for, my guy? Yeah, but like he, uh, Eddie Valiant steps out and he sees like the brooms from Fantasia, the mm. fl- like the 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 elephants. Yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, he sees Dumbo. Um, there's plenty of Disney in this movie. Horace Horace Horse Collar is in there. Horace Horse. You just recognize all. I'm just like, that's a cow. <laughs> 
That's a shrimp. Uh, Clarabelle. Cattle is call. it Clarabelle cow? Clarabelle cow? Clarabelle cow. I don't know. They had a casting call, except it was a cattle call. Yeah. There's little, lots of little clever, silly things. Um, but if you really want to pull off, like, that's the thing. This could have easily just been Disney, you know, just a bunch of Disney characters, right? Mm-hmm. But, like, Robert Zemeckis, he said in an interview, it was like, with Roger Rabbit, he wanted to combine the the brilliant animation of Disney, right? Mm-hmm. The characters of Looney Tunes, because Looney Tunes always had the more memorable characters, mm-hmm. right? Like loud and yeah, just, uh, and then the humor of Tex Avery, right? Mm. So if you want to combine those thing- things, you got to get some of those things in there, right? Yeah. So apparently, Robert Zemeckis, like, or or no, I think it was just Robert Zemeckis hadn't been brought in yet. This was in those that time where they're trying to develop it. Disney called up Warner Brothers and said, "Hey, we're making this movie called Roger Rabbit. Can we use some of your characters?" And Warner Brothers was like, no. <laughs> no, we will, you will never see Bugs Bunny in a Disney cartoon ever. Right. And well. then Steven Spielberg, height of his powers rolls in. He's like, Hey man, we're making this movie called Roger Rabbit. <laughs> can we, can we put your characters in it? And Double they're like, standard. He's like, and they're like, Oh, of course, Steven, you, uh. you, you just want Bugs. We'll give you Daffy too. We'll give you, <laughs> Oh man. We'll have them all. Yosemite Sam, it's all for you. <laughs> it's all for you. <laughs> Gosh. Good job, Steven. Yep. Good job. And so, thanks to Steven Spielberg, we have great scenes like this. This is that like a dueling piano club. Mm-hmm. Does anybody understand what this duck is saying? Mm-mm. So you want to tell the, the folks at home who those two characters were? One was Daffy Duck. Uh huh. And what was the other one? Not wearing pants. <laughs> I don't think either of them were pant- wearing pants, to be honest. <laughs> so one of them was Daffy Duck, and one of them was Daffy Ducking it. Donald Duck. <laughs> Daffy Duck. Um, Donald Duck returning from his uh, his, his stay his, at sea. Yeah. <laughs> Did he go and visit his nephews? I don't. No. Know. The nephews aren't in the movie, to be honest. But of course, I guess the thing like Ducktales really wasn't a big thing when they were making this movie. Yeah. Uh, but um, yeah, that's Donald Duck. Having a dueling, like a piano duel with Daffy Duck, and it's amazing. <laughs> it um, is. It's it's like wonderful, and especially like when you know that they, it's not CG. So like, oh, something broke. They had to break that on set with yep. no. Uh, Donald Donald pulls a cannon from like because Daffy throws Donald into the the back of the piano that he's playing mm-hmm. right, and then da- D- Donald emerges from the piano with a cannon and shoots. Daffy with a cannon, and there's this huge, like, shrapnel-laden cannon hole in the piano that's just, like, there on set. Yeah, like, they, they just blew up a baby grand, yep. and then they, like, use, um, like, hooks to drag them off stage. Yeah. I've worked with a lot of wisecrackers, but you are despicable. This is the last time I work with someone with a speech impediment. Yeah, that, that was the cannon. Yeah, it's a, and it's like it's perfect because Donald Duck and Daffy Duck are like the two. They're like the two best characters from both companies, anyway. You have you like ducks? I, I like Donald Duck. The, both of them are like agents of chaos, right? You know, one one is one has this, like an anger problem. One's just nuts. It's great. I think both have an anger problem. Yeah, they probably do. Maybe ducks are just well. That's that's fair. 
Ducks are terrifying. Ducks and goose and all them build animals. They're vengeful creatures. <laughs> they are. Ugh. So, yeah. And then you got... You have some other lesser known... I, I wouldn't even call them lesser known. They're, they're very popular and they have stood the test of time. But for my generation, not so much. But they're definitely of the classic era that don't occupy the Disney. They don't occupy the Warner Brothers. Mm-hmm. Such as... Betty? Long time no see. What are you doing here? Work's been kind of slow since cartoons went to color. But I still got it, Eddie. Boop, boop, boop. Betty Boop? I, how is this for you guys? Because when I'm not seeing it and I'm just hearing it, I kind of hate it. Yeah. I kind of just hate I, that. <laughs> to be honest, like I, I kind of just hate Betty Boop in general. I don't have any nostalgia for Betty Boop. Yeah, I don't. I've never. I don't think I've ever seen a face. Her lips are just her chin. I I don't think I've ever seen a Betty Boop cartoon. um, But I guess it's sexy (laughs) to people. (laughs) I mean, I don't want to say people still get tattoos of Betty Boop on their arm. I don't think people do. I don't know. Again, it's an icon. She's an icon for some reason. (laughs) Hey, people like things. Yeah, but I'm glad she's in there. Yeah. You know what I mean? Any other uh, classic cartoons that you spotted that you want to mention? Uh, Tweety was there for a T- minute. Tweety was there. and I, I do have a clip of that. Oh, look. Pitties. Hi, Tweety. This little pity went to market. This little pity stayed home. No. This little pity had roast beef. And this little pity had... Uh-oh. Ran out of pitties. Ran out of pitties. <laughs> It's um that is Mel Blanc, the the legendary voice actor doing all of the classic Looney Tunes characters. Oh. Um, I think he was just a few years from his death. Mm. Yeah, but yeah, that, that but is. He did it. Yeah, that's the thing. It's like I'm glad he's there. Yeah, because it's like this movie celebrates his character so much. It's like he it had to be him. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then yeah, like um. Somebody Sam showed up. Yeah, Somebody Sam. So did uh, Porky Pig. So, oh, um, I, I I forgot to grab that clip. That could have been our exit. Yeah, Porky Pig legit ends <laughs> the the entire movie with his. And then Tinkerbell flies in and and wands him away. So it's like <laughs> both companies melding together to close the movie out. It's Get great. that clip and put it at the end of this. I will. Um. And then we also have a uh, uh, Mickey and Bugs together. Yep. So that that's those that's like the marquee one. I, I, yeah. So Eddie Valiant in his adventure um, is is led on a car chase mm-hmm. to Toontown. Toontown. And, and the movie like it's like just starts its third act and it like moves into Toontown and it's supposed to be like this grand reveal, right? He goes yeah. through a tunnel. At the end of the tunnel, curtains open just like a classic cartoon, and you hear mm-hmm. like the. Right? Yeah. And and this is what Toontown. Yeah, this is what it sounds like. And it's this colorful, magical, loud cartoon world. And you see all of like the really old cartoon characters, like the 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 hugging trees yeah um like from silent cartoons yeah um the the th- disney's three little pigs oh, oh. um bir- birds saying hi eddie, <laughs> <laughs> hi, eddie. Hi. so and and that's where you get a bunch of like really minor cameos from all these different characters like yeah um and at the very end to cap off 
the adventure through Toontown, Eddie Valiant is falling from a, a building. Because Tweety. Yeah, that, that was that clip with Tweety Bird. Tweety, like, pecked at his hands yeah. as he was hanging from a building, and he's falling. Never trust a bird. Right. Unless it's a crow. So he... Where, where are the crows from Dumbo? That's the question. Well, they suck. <laughs> Never trust any bird, except a crow, except those crows. They don't want no good for you. Wait, hold on. I'm mixing them up with the whiz crows. <laughs> so, Eddie is falling from a great height, uh, and uh, all of a sudden, Mickey Mouse and Bugs Bunny parachute in. And this is what it sounds like. Me. What's up, Doc? Jumping without a parachute? Kinda dangerous, ain't it? Yeah. Yeah, you can get killed, huh? You guys got a spare? Uh, Bugs does. Yeah? Yeah, but I don't think you want it. I do, I do. Give it to me. Gee, uh, better let him have it, Bugs. Okay, Doc. Whatever you say, here's the spare. Thank you. And it's a, it's, it's a spare, spare tire. It's a spare tire. <laughs> Ain't I a stinker? <laughs> um, interesting thing about Bugs Bunny's contract, right? Apparently D- WB was like <laughs> totally fine with... Disney using all of their characters except with Bugs Bunny because he's the star. It was like Bugs Bunny had his own contract and it was like Bugs Bunny has to have the exact same number of lines or more than Mickey Mouse. Mm. So you can go back and look. It's like, no, they have the exact same number of lines in the whole movie. That's funny. Yeah. uh, To a word count? (laughs) That would be egregious. To the letter. To the letter. An imaginary character has his own contract. Who signed that? Who signed Bugs Bunny? It was probably just a carrot. Uh, Yakko Warner himself. Hey. <laughs> I don't know who <laughs> Warners are. So that's it for the characters, really. Uh, the only other thing I want to talk about the movie before we get into, like, Jess's stuff is um, just the sheer technical wizardry that mm. these men and women performed to make this movie possible. Yeah. We kind of alluded to it. You know, um, basically, um, Richard Williams, the animation director, as I said, he goes, the key to making this work is to have Roger and all of the cartoon characters interact with the world around them. Right. Mm -hmm. So they had to basically get involved on a like a very minor level. It's like when they go out to film a scene, they had to make sure that there are things on set that one, they had to know where Roger was going to be. At all times, right? Mm-hmm. I was I was watching the behind the scenes footage, right? And like they would run through the scene like three times to make sure that eye lines were correct, right? Oh. Uh Bob Hoskins, who plays Eddie Valiant, right? He's he's acting against nobody. There's nobody there for him to actually yeah. work off of. So they would re- rehearse the scene one time with rubber dolls. Like a a, a Roger size or a Jessica mm-hmm. size rubber doll would be trotted out and move around the set as if it was there. So Bob Hoskins can look at the the the, the doll and know where Roger was going to be. So his high lines are always in the correct place, right? They also had Charles Fleischer, the voice of Roger, off to the side voicing those characters. So he was actually on set in order to like feed lines to, to Eddie. He would do it in costume. Oh. He, ins- he insisted to dress up like Roger. Wow. Yeah. Terrifying. <laughs> um, <laughs> not only that, like, at least on, like, the character level, right? Like, the actors, they all went through mime training huh. in order to know how to carry heavy objects, right? Like, 
Eddie Valiant will pick up Roger and like swing him around. Mm-hmm. Bob Hoskins had to know how heavy Roger yeah. was so that he can, you know, mime those the actions way, yeah, out yeah, on yeah. set. So that's all just on the set before any animation had even started. And then on top of that, they had to make sure objects in on set would move around, right? Mm-hmm. If they knew Roger was going to jump onto a spinny chair, they had to make sure that chair was motorized so that like at the point in time where Roger's going to jump on it while they're filming on set, this chair will just spin yeah. automatically, right? Um, we mentioned the weasels earlier. Uh-huh. This, this is a funny one. Weasels? Yes, I find I have a special gift for the work. All right, you mugs, fall out. Did you find the rabbit? Don't worry, Judge. We got the formants all over the city. We'll find them. <laughs> So these weasel characters are all carrying real guns, right? Yeah. They, they, you know, they, they carry these guns around. If you go and look at the behind the scenes, whenever the weasels are supposed to be on screen, they either have like robot arms with <laughs> guns, like going like this, oh, right? Yikes. Or they hired puppeteers to stand on the top of the set like marionettes and manipulate the guns so there are guns on strings just walking around just in rooms like man i hope that's not loaded (laughs) and so like it's it's really funny yeah um baby herman cigar i got a clip of baby herman we haven't heard from him yet what do you know you dumb broad you got the iq of a rattle you valiant yeah i want to talk to you about the acne murder hey stop why don't you run downstairs and get me a racing form oh (laughs) it's just it's this dirty old man trapped in a Baby body. But anyway, Baby Herman is always smoking a cigar, a real cigar. Mm -hmm. So in that scene, Baby Herman's in his little uh, Uh, stroller. Yes, you can call it a stroller. No, a stroller. I was going to say pram, which is the British word for it. And I couldn't think. (laughs) Yeah, so he's in his stroller and... Push uh, push car. (laughs) Yeah, and he's he's smoking a cigar and it's coming up to him. They they have a robot arm in the stroller while the scene is being filmed that's like just moving the the, the cigar around. The cigar yeah. around. Not only is it remote controlled, it's remote controlled by this thing on a dude like a puppeteer's arm that he's legit moving. <laughs> so it's like this weird almost like a like a power glove, right? For your <laughs> entire arm. And it's it's get there, he's whenever he twists his arm in one such way. The robot arm will, the robot arm in the stroller will mimic the, huh. the movement of that man's arm. That's, that's I was intense. like, I was like, what the heck? Wizardry. Was this technology ever used again? <laughs> Who knows? Huh. Hmm. Probably not. Um, it's like, hmm? Benny the Cab. Mm-hmm. Right. They they hop into Benny the Cab in the movie, and like you know they're in this like cartoon cab, and it's like you know it's a car chase through through L.A. On set, they had like this tiny little go-kart, right? That it, it was like a tiny little go-kart with just like basically wheels and a stool. <laughs> so uh, Bob Hoskins is just sitting on a little school, like a little stool <laughs> with wheels on. And he's just like, <laughs> and it like <laughs> kind of looks like Mario Kart in a way. Oh, gosh. And it, it's kind of funny. Bob Hoskins does play Super Mario in the oh, Super yeah. Mario Brothers movie. Wonderful movie, even if he hates it. Yeah. He doesn't even remember. He was drunk the whole time. <laughs> yeah, uh, he was. <laughs> is that booze I smell, Valiant? Bob, do I look like a stenographer? Shut your yap, Eddie. The man's in charge. That's all right, Lieutenant. From the smell of him, I'd say it was the booze talking. <laughs> <laughs> he 
he didn't like Mario Brothers, that's okay. I think it was the booze talking. <laughs> I think um, that just made me think of an interesting fact. Well, the fact that he was drunk all through Mario made me think about uh, that after this, it took him a while to stop talking to imaginary people. Is that real? Yeah, like huh. not not like just because he was like so in into the character, like there was a while, like a while where he would just be like, "Yeah, Roger." Oh. <laughs> <laughs> like one of those roles that break you. Interesting. So the movie is filmed, right? They film all of the live action scenes, and I assume there's some pickups and stuff like that. Then it all gets sent to the animators, right? Mm-hmm. And Richard Williams had his team in, uh, and it was a team that he selectively built. In, uh, I think it was they were based in the UK because one he hated Disney's bureaucracy, well. and two Disney animation was in the pits. And he's <laughs> like, I want my own animators, thank you. So they all worked, you know, alone in in in, in the UK, and like they had to basically print out every frame of the movie. Whoa! Now, if you don't know how film works, a Whoa. Every second of a movie is 24 frames, 24 pictures. So they, so they said, yeah, we would come in in the morning and there's a stack of, of one second of film, 24 prints, pictures oh. of the movie. And they would just draw over it and, and like animate over it and mm. create the animation cells. That, and not only that, they had to create animation cells for like the basic animation in order to like sell the realistic quality of these characters, they had to be shaded in shadows. Yeah. So they animated shadows, shading, all these things separately. Ooh, and yeah. I was just like, that's so much paper. That's so much work. Oh my gosh. No, I, it's a lot of work. Even even as you're like, was this ever duplicated? No. I would I'd be like, this was a feat. There was a wonderful let's we have other ways to doing yeah, this. Did, digital animation made this. How long is this easier. movie? Ninety minutes? Yeah, something like that. What? Let's just do math. How many how many I, I did is that? I did it. There's there's uh, hundred and fifty thousand frames in this movie. Whoa. <laughs> Whoa. Good thing back then they didn't have uh in credits. <laughs> Quarter of a million j- just for individual frames in oh, this movie. Oh man. Huh. So want to get want to get into your topics there? Should we? Hey kids, you still awake? We've already been talking for fifty minutes. That's cool. Really? Have we been talking about fifty minutes? Yep. Wow. Oh, I don't. I'm not going to mention about that. Anyway. Oh, okay. So we haven't really talked much about the movie, and I, I there was just like a couple of small things that I really uh, enjoyed when we were watching it through the last time that we watched it. Mm-hmm. The planting of like things that were going to happen later, right? Yeah, like, so like, like when pay, we payoffs, payoff, yeah, 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 yeah. Setups yeah. and payoffs. The setups. For, foreshadowing. It is. Uh, I don't like. I don't. I don't personally think of it as foreshadowing. But it's, but it's setups and payoffs. But it is set, setups and payoffs, which yeah. I guess is a, whatever. But like when um, Acme dies and we like go and see him in the warehouse that he has uh, become deceased in, uh, <coughs> all the cops that are making fun of this dead man graveyard humor. Yeah, it, um, uh, uh, Marvin Acme. He 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 not only owns Toontown, he owns like like a joke shop or something like he creates like joke products for tunes. Mm-hmm. And so he has things like, like, um, disappearing, reappearing ink, yep. uh, which you see in an earlier scene. Yeah. It's, which is paid off later. I, I do have that. <laughs> what, you think that's funny? Oh, 
It's a panic. <laughs> you won't think it's funny when I stick that pen up your nose. Oh, now, calm down, son, will you? Look, the stain's gone. It's disappearing ink. No hard feelings, I hope. Yep, yeah. so, yeah, Marvin Acme sprays Eddie Valiant with disappearing ink. Yeah, and then says it's disappearing reaping. Like, honestly, though, I remember watching it and being like, what kind of nut job? Like, I don't know who you are. You look like you're in a bad mood and in a bar and just ordered a lot of alcohol. I'm going to attack you with ink. Uh -huh, it's a joke. He was trying to die. <laughs> he did he want wanted to die. somebody to do him yeah. in. But he was living that dangerous Bella Swan in Eclipse life. <laughs> But then it comes back later because everyone's looking for Marvi Marvin Acme's will, mm -hmm. which has like the rights to Toontown, the ownership, the property rights. Yeah. And uh, turns out that it's on this blank sheet of paper that Rogers had the whole time. Yeah. Because which, he wrote it in Disappearing Ink. What kind of man writes his last will and testament in Disappearing Ink? Like... Like, what if somebody was going through his stuff and was just like, uh, blank paper. Let me just shred it. What? What is this? This man wanted to die, <laughs> and he wanted to leave a mystery, but it's the stupidest mystery. He's a jokester. No, you don't joke about when you go leave, when you got a fortune, when you got a fortune. Honey, honey. Yes. If I take a life insurance policy out on you, I need your will to be clear. Needs to be. <laughs> I'll, I'll write it in reappearing ink. No. <laughs> Regular ink. That's not the only example of foreshadowing. No, no, no. He also, in this warehouse where we find uh, one deceased Acme, uh, there is a, like, uh, punch gun. Like, you know, we... It's a, it's a hammer. It's a, it's a hammer? Oh, yeah. yeah it's a, it's a it's hammer, a mallet. mallet, and then you, like, squeeze the handle, and um, a boxing glove sprouts out on a spring, and, like, while you're... Around when it's the crime scene, a cop, a bunch of cops are just going through stuff rather than looking for evidence and playing with things. They're just like, ha ha ha. Sounds about right. <laughs> and then they also find what I can best describe as a tune hole. Yeah, a portal gun without the portal. Yeah, it's it's like, what, gun. you know, it's what you see in classic like uh, Wile E. Coyote cartoons. Yeah. It's like a black hole that, you know, leads to yeah. somewhere. you just drop it on a wall and it's yeah. you're gonna reappear somewhere. Hey, Chisel, get a lot of this. You seen one of these? They're <laughs> <laughs> just chuckling at these tune mm. objects. Turns out, all those tune objects are useful in the final confrontation with yeah. Judge Doom. They're, they're all weapons that they use to, to, to take win. down the bad guy. Yeah. yeah. Um, any other ones? Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> there, even throughout, when we keep seeing the weasels, uh, something that's said three times before it's fulfilled is... Stop that laughing! You know what happens when you can't stop laughing? <laughs> One of these days you're gonna die laughing. One of these days you're gonna die laughing. And it is... Tomorrow. The day yeah. is tomorrow. Yeah. The these days is the following day. Yep. They, uh, during, like, basically Eddie Valiant is being stuck up by the the weasels at the very end. Yeah. Um, it's, you know, it, it, this is going to be it. He's, they're going to kill him and they're going to kill, uh. Roger and Jessica. And Jessica. And all of Toonland will get there. Yep. <laughs> um, and what's his name? Uh, Eddie Valiant has himself an epiphany. He's like, Let one of these days they're going to die laughing. It might as well be today. Yeah. And 
You got a problem with that, Valiant? Huh. I just, uh, want you to know something about the guy you're gonna get. Does a whole slapstick routine. Yep. Now, Roger is his name. Laughter is his game. Come on, you dope. I'm tired, bro, but watch him go insane. Basically, Bob Hoskins becomes a live-action cartoon character. Yeah. And he's, like, hopping around, getting on a pogo stick, and... <laughs> Juggling heavy balls and hurting himself and making these weasels laugh so hard <laughs> that they die. <laughs> hey, Daddy, keep it up! You're killing him! You're slaying him! You're knocking him dead! <laughs> so, like, there's like lots of little things like that planted through, yeah. uh, and we are able to they like come to fruition. My, my favorite, I have two favorite ones uh, since we're on the topic. My first one is like, because Roger Rabbit um, is like, has its basis in a classic noir, like detective stories, mm -hmm. right? Um, there's this character uh, trait of Eddie, like his backstory mm -hmm. is very, backstory. yeah, it's like very hard boiled, like, you know, no, just basic detective story. Like his old partner has died, right? But it's, it's, it's funny the way they... Sell Give it. it to the audience. Yeah, because it's it kind of sells that idea that this is a detective story and a cartoon combined. Mm. Get this straight, Greenball. I don't work for Jones. So what's his problem? Toon killed his brother. What? Huh? Dropped the piano on his head. <laughs> Dropped a piano on his head. Uh -huh. It's perfect. I love that. Uh. And, um... So that, that Eddie, as Eddie, like, you know, starts to warm up to Roger, he explains what his backstory was and he tells the story of how his brother died, right? What could have possibly happened to you to turn you into such a sourpuss? You want to know? I'll tell you. A toon killed my brother. A toon? No. That's right. A toon. We're investigating a robbery at the First National Bank of Toon Town. Back in those days, me and Teddy liked working to in town. Thought it was a lot of laughs. Anyway, this guy got away with a zillion simoleons. We trailed into a little dive down on Yoxa Street. Went in. Only he got the drop on us, literally. Dropped the piano on us from 15 stories. Broke my arm. Teddy never made it. I never did find out who that guy was. All I remember was him standing over me laughing with those burning red eyes and that high squeaky voice. So they describe this cartoon character with a high squeaky voice and bright red eyes, right? Yeah. And you think it's just like, <clears throat> it's just your run-of-the-mill, you know, tragic backstory for your hero, right? Mm. But turns out that tune comes back. And who is it? <gasps> Our secret villain. Holy smoke, he's a tune! Surprise! Not really. That lame brain freeway idea could only be cooked up by a tune. It's Judge Doom. It's Judge Doom! Remember me? Kill you! 
and uh, Christopher Lloyd actually like gets cartoon red eyes. This is the terrifying part, kids. <laughs> this is the part that scared me as a small child. I've, I've heard many stories of people scared of this moment in the in the in the movie. Um, the mo- like to me, the most grotesque thing is they run Christopher Lloyd over with like a steamroller, mm. and. Uh, he gets back up. <gasps> he gets back up and he's like flattened like you would, like a cartoon character would after getting flattened by a steamroller. And mm-hmm. he like wobbles around like, and I'm like, that's very disturbing. <laughs> um, well, then I, I, I do want to say that listening to that this time, <laughs> Eddie's saying like, drop the piano from 15 stores. Like, Boy, you had time to move. <laughs> Did you like, what's that sound? That whistling sound? Other people are probably screaming because they see it. Just look up. And then move. That's just not how cartoons work. They're human. <laughs> um, so just a quick turn. Um, something that uh, is, my, I believe, very different from the book. Um, the dark underbelly of this. Yeah. Uh, like the actual plot, right? Like why was Roger Rabbit framed, you're asking? Um, well, because they needed to kill off Acme. Why did they want to kill off Acme? They being Judge Doom. Um, because Judge Doom wants to, uh, own Toontown. Uh, and so he killed off Acme, making sure, like, and he was trying to get a hold of the will, because the will, like we said, goes to, uh, the tune. It leaves Toontown to the tunes, but he didn't find it. But as long as it goes away, you know, that you can't find it in a couple of days, then it's just going to revert to city property, whatever. Yeah. He does this because... He has hatred for his own people. Like, this whole thing is about one genocide um, because the end moment is them trying to break down the wall between L.A. and Toontown Toontown to flood it with Dip. dip. Okay, we have not talked about Dip, but it is a very important plot point. So I'm going to play a quick clip about what Dip is. Remember how we always thought there wasn't a way to kill a toon? Well, Doom found the way. Turpentine, acetone, benzene. Calls it the dip. I'll catch the rabbit, Mr. Valiant. Then I'll try him, convict him, and execute him. And then he murders a cartoon shoe on screen. Yeah. And that's its death. And sticks it, sticking it into a vat of dip with a gloved hand because he's a tune. We don't know this yet. And pulling it back with the color of the tune's yellow and red. ink or yellow and red ink dripping off of him. Yeah. This. So you, you go ahead. This man wants to murder his own kind. Yes. At, he wants to load up a truck like a like a fire truck full of dip. Run it through Toontown and murder them all. Mur everything and lay waste the buildings because everything is tunes there and just spray it down with poison. Yep. Like, um, okay. And why does he want to do that? Here's the sinister part. Because he wants to build a freeway where it is. Who's got time to wonder what happens to some ridiculous talking mice when you're driving by at 75 miles an hour? What are you talking about? There's no road past Toontown. Not yet. Several months ago, I had the good providence to stumble upon this plan of the city councils. A construction plan of epic proportions. We are calling it a freeway. He wants to build a freeway. So he wants to displace an entire community of people yeah. in order to build this freeway. Yep. Here's the sinister part. 
That actually happened. <laughs> In California. I mean, everywhere. Yeah. Um, so, uh, interesting fact about this plot point. Um, it was partially inspired by Chinatown, the movie. Mm. Chinatown, which was about, like, it was a neo-noir movie, like, related to, like, water ways in la right Mm -hmm. it was like the city trying to control the waterways right right so it it would make sense that like the spiritual successor to chinatown would be to worry about freeways right like the sinister bureaucracy and politics involved with the building of the freeways so that's what they were going for here Mm. in 2011 a certain video game called la noir also wanted (laughs) to make a spiritual sequel to chinatown with a Pretty much the exact same plot as <laughs> Who Framed Roger Rabbit, and I wanna, I wanna guess, I wanna hope that they had no idea that they were doing it, <laughs> and they like, you know, one of them sits down with their kid to watch Roger Rabbit. He's like, "No, we ripped them off." <laughs> no. Yeah. So in L.A. Noir, Who Framed Roger Rabbit, there's a lot of similarities because yeah. <laughs> freeways. Because hey, you know, great ideas are not, yeah. you know, every many people can have them. Um, yeah, I just wanted to, like, touch on how it, it, the, the stakes of this movie are genocide and community displacement. Yep. Uh, and, um, the beautiful thing is that neither of those things happen (laughs) in this movie. Uh, the minority wins, I guess. Also, can we just talk about that last clip with the, or no, the first clip where he was saying, I will catch Roger Rabbit. I will be the judge, jury, and executioner. I'm like, yo, nobody cares about this. Like, legit, like, all these people are, are law keepers listening to this. And like, uh, actually, we have a judicial system. Right. Um, We got to prove that he did the thing. You're saying, no, you're just going to murder him. Okay, I guess since you're giving jurisdiction to you, man who is not a tune. Look, there's a lot of stuff this movie is saying that I don't know if it meant to be saying. Yeah, but either way, it's 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 pretty smart movie there at the end. It's yeah, funny. yeah, yeah, yeah. So let's talk about how this movie was received. Okay, it was a huge hit. Oh, huge hit! Pew pew. Yeah, um, yeah. So the critics love this movie. Um, I, I pulled a few quotes here. Uh, the Washington Post considered Roger Rabbit to be the quote definitive collaboration of pure talent. Hmm. Zemeckis had Walt Disney Pictures enthusiastic backing. Producer Spielven, producer Steven Spielberg's pull. Warner Brothers blessing. Canadian animator Richard Williams' ink and paint, Mel Blanc's voice, Jeffrey Price and Peter Simmons' witty, phonetic screenplay, George Lucas's Industrial Light and Magic, and Bob Hoskins' comical performance as the burliest, sl- uh, shaggiest private eye. And I was like, yeah, that perfectly describes <laughs> That's a this movie. Qu- yeah. Yep. Um, it won Academy Awards for Best Sound Effects Editing, Best Visual Effects, and Best Film Editing, and it was nominated for Best Art Direction, Best Cinematography, and Best Sound. And I was like, well-deserved, now that I know exactly what went Went into into making it. Um, Richard Williams received a Special Achievement Academy Award for his animation. So, well-deserved there. Small golf clap. It also won Best Visual Effects at the British Academy uh, Film Awards. And uh, it made a ton of money. I think it outgrossed uh, every other uh, animated movie of the year. Was it considered an animated movie? I think so. Yeah. Yeah, I mean... It still outperformed any yeah. other animated movie in, of the year, so huge hit. Um, the legacy of Roger Rabbit. So Disney considered Roger Rabbit to be basically like a huge star on the s- scale of Mickey Mouse for the next several years. Um, he hosted Mickey Mouse's 60th birthday celebration in oh. 1988. Disney produced three theatrical shorts starring Roger, Jessica, and Baby Herman. We had Tummy Trouble 
1989, Roller Coaster Rabbit 1990, and Trail Mix Up in 1993. And we talked about this. Uh, Mickey's Toontown, mm. which opened at Disneyland in 1993, was heavily inspired by Who Framed Roger Rabbit. And this included an attraction called Roger Rabbit's Car Tune Spin. Yeah. Where you ride on a little Benny the Cab <laughs> and uh, go run through Toontown. There was a short-lived comic book, handful of video game spinoffs, and then uh, Gary K. Wolf actually followed up. He he published two follow-ups to Who Censored Roger Rabbit. Oh. Uh, he released Who Plugged Roger Rabbit in 1991, and Who Whacked Roger Rabbit in 2013. How many times is this guy going to die? Yeah. Um, apparently, he considers like Who Whacked Roger Rabbit to be just as good, if not better, than the first novel. So, oh. if you're interested, check it out. Um, and since 1989, there have been various pitches for a Roger Rabbit follow-up film. No. Including, like, a prequel, which no. would have starred Roger Rabbit in World War II. Oh. <laughs> there are actually two proposals working their way through Disney right now, but basically everyone is, like, pessimistic about whether or not they'll make it. Because at this point, it's like Disney is very interested, is only interested in 3D animation. Mm-hmm. It just doesn't make sense for them to want to make a yeah. movie celebrating 2D animation again. Which <laughs> I don't think I want to see a sequel, to be honest. Oh, no, I don't. Yeah. Absolutely not. Would you recommend Roger Rabbit? Oh, yeah. 100%. Uh, don't watch it with kids under the age of 13, <laughs> because it gets a little scary. <laughs> or, yeah, or like, you know, be be ready with that fast forward button through the scary parts. Yeah. Or the, the raunchy parts. Yeah. Jessica Rabbit. Was a sexual awakening for many people. <laughs> she sure was. <laughs> that's all she wrote. We're gonna close out with uh, the a piece. That, 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 that's all, folks. <laughs> yeah, that too. No, um, we're gonna close out with a piece from the score uh, called "Valiant and Valiant." Uh, the movie was composed by Alan Silvestri, same guy who did uh, "Back to the Future." Oh, so Robert Zemeckis has his people. <laughs> anyway, that's that's that. We'll be back with my movie of 1988. invites you to tune in again for the most highly acclaimed movie of the year. He's here. Tune in again for Roger Rabbit, Jessica Rabbit, Baby Herman, Benny the Cab, and the most incredible cast of tunes ever to perform together in one motion picture. What's up, Doc? My biscuits are burning. This is hot spot. Tune in again for Who Framed Roger Rabbit. The last time I worked with someone with a speech impediment. A Steven Spielberg presentation, a Robert Zemeckis film. Rated PG. Now playing at a theater near you. Check newspaper for showtimes. Coming in with Once Upon a Time in New York City. With a nap time song. Yeah. Uh, that would be performed by Huey Lewis 
and the news for what movie? Oliver and Company. Oliver and Company. Oh man, <laughs> I hate this movie. <laughs> and I'm mad at my five-year-old self for watching it so much. Mm, I mean, it's better than some of your other crap. Is wonderful it? Movies. Is it? Yes. I think it's worse. This is the worst movie of all of my movies so far. American Tale. Yeah, it's worse than that. No, absolutely not. Take that lie. <laughs> I can't. And go to your room. No. Okay, uh, oh, I didn't even read this for the last one, but I'm really seeing November 18th, 1988, featuring the voice talents of Joey Lawrence, Cheech Marin, Bette Midler, Robert Loggia, Dom DeLuise, and Billy Joel, based on Oliver Twist by Charles Dickens, that is, Oliver and Company. So, yeah, um, I, honestly, like, freaking the, the opening song might be the, the high point of, <laughs> of, of Oliver and Company. Maybe not, it's, it's one of them. Like, this, uh, this song, um, for some reason, st- still to this day, when I when I th- like am driving, like you know, just as the sun is rising in the east, right? Like I'm driving somewhere, like I think of this song and I like sing to my baby. Where once upon a time in New York City, I don't know because the movie opens with like you know the sunrise in mm. New York and <laughs> I don't know. On a nice mat. That's the only thing from this movie that stuck with me to an adult. You know, <laughs> the rest it's like gone. <laughs> Then why do you hate it so much? If you can't even remember Because it's it. bad. Mm. When I watch it, it's bad. Yeah. yeah, so it's like, I watched this movie uh, when it was re-released on VHS, one of those Disney clamshell yeah. things. Uh, I think it was 1998. Like, Disney always made a big, you know, hullabaloo when they re-released an old movie on VHS. Um, and it was like... We're opening the garage! Get this movie while you can! <laughs> I, I feel like... Like, because when you get one of those VHS tapes, right? Like, I got the Pocahontas VHS mm-hmm. in, like, 1995, right? 96. You get that DVD, or DVD. You get the VHS, there are previews at the front. Mm-hmm. The previews are just for other Disney movies. So it's like crack. <laughs> you get one and you can't, you know. Anymore. Yeah. And they only advertise other Disney movies yeah, to do. you. So it's like, we sell these kids one VHS, we'll sell all of them, right? So it's like. Oh yeah, this movie, the Oliver and Company's coming out. My, gotta get it. <laughs> the Aristocats, it's coming out. We gotta get it. <laughs> Disney is like in their own little world. Or yeah. like, there is no other in our universe. Did, did you watch this movie as a kid? Um, I'm not a Disney kid. Like, I probably, maybe. I, I definitely had seen it before we saw it together. I, I can't say when. <laughs> okay. Yeah, well, I mean, I can't say, like, if I was five or if I was 12, 15. I have younger siblings. Mm. I, but I can't remember watching it. I don't have, like... Yeah, I just, like, with other, like, movies you watch as a kid, it's like, I have no, like, strong memory associated with it. Yeah, like, I don't remember where I was sitting or what I was wearing. This movie existed and I watched it a lot (laughs) because we had it. Basically. Yeah. So it's like, there are times when this movie, like, lines will come up and it's just like, you know, that part of your brain is like, you remember just the way words are spoken Mm -hmm. and, like, sound effects and stuff like that, but... For the most part, yeah. Yeah, it's like, Like, whatever. every time I rewatch this movie, I forget the plot. (laughs) Same! I'll just be like, what happens in this movie again? Yeah. It's just a cat makes friends with the dogs? You wanna wanna give it a crack? Um, Tell us some characters and some plots? Well, we have... Oh, 
gosh, but the only name I know is Oliver and Penny. Oliver! <laughs> uh, we have Oliver, our little tabby kitten. Uh-huh. Uh, we have... He's, he's an orphan cat. He's an orphan cat. We've got uh, Bandana Boy. Yeah, that, so he befriends a dog named Dodger. Dodger. Oh, you sure picked the wrong guy to get hot dogs from, kid. Get, get away from me. Oh, chill out, man. I don't eat cats. It's too much fur. It's uh, <laughs> voiced by Billy Joel himself. Oh. Um, and he's playing like, he's got like the black scent going on. Like, hey, stay cool, man. Or I don't know, maybe it's like a beat poet thing. Uh, like a beatnik, like, hey, man. I think it might just gotta be. Gotta stay cool, man. I think it's just like uh, a barrio. Like one of, they're in New York. Yeah, so. it's a street, street, street smart. Yeah. Yeah. Street talking. Okay. Street talking. Yeah. <laughs> You're so cute. Um, we also have a Brazilian blowout female dog. I have no, what are you talking about? I don't know the names of these characters. I, I don't even know who you're describing. The one female dog in the crew with the poor gambling man. Let <laughs> me try to unpack that. So Dodger takes, or Oliver follows Dodger home to the docks and Dodger and his fellow band of miscreant dogs are owned by a poor like a bum yes they're owned by a bum down on his luck no home he's man. his name's fagan dead men do not buy dog food so big smiles and get out there and fetch. and he he recruits his dogs to go out and find treasures for him so that he can sell them for money yes he's <laughs> trained his dogs to be um ruffians Pick, pickpockets <laughs> pickpockets uh, scammers, con artists. Yep, so there, the, the crew, there's Girl Dog. I don't have a clip for her. Her name is Brazilian Brolout Dog. I, I, I can't We've remember. Got... I, had, I had her name written down. Hold on. Rita. Rita. We also have Great Dumb Dane. Yeah, great. <laughs> Again, these are like, these characters, like, their names come and go. <laughs> and you're like, I don't know. Um, that dog's name is Einstein. Really? Yeah. I don't I don't even think they, they, they probably say it, but it's like, those. Einstein and Rita are like throwaway characters, in my opinion. Okay, we have but, Hamlet. That you don't remember his name? He says it several times. That's the one character that I could I could one hundred percent remember his name, even as from an adult Theodore. Being, no, Francis. Oh, uh, okay, okay, okay. Hey, Frankie Capasso, man, you're getting slow, man. <laughs> my name is Francis. Francis, not Frank, not Frankie. Francis. Whenever I hear the name Francis or, or see it written down, I go, Francis. Francis. <laughs> and then you, and you, then we have Cheech and or Chong. Yeah. Now you heard you heard you heard uh, the character there. Uh, that's Tito, played by Cheech Marin. Hey Frankie, man, what you watching, man? Hey, does it get the girl? I mean, what happened? Shut up, you little rodent. Hey man, this stuff is boring, man. Come on, let's watch some boxing, man. I want to see some action. Which he does, he's great. Like, <laughs> yeah, he is. Like of all the characters that they they use for this movie, Cheech is like the only one they brought back. Yeah. For for Lion King. Yeah. It's one of the hyenas. I love I love Tito. I want to just play more Tito. Hold on. <laughs> hey man, if this is torture, chain me to the wall. <laughs> that that line. That line, yeah. yeah that yeah. line was in the trailer. Yeah. Like that probably sold me that VHS tape. <laughs> Even though it's like that's not a thing that kids understand. Yeah, like, I, I would not understand his delivery that, though. Yeah, yeah, it just it just sticks with you. We have bad loan shark. 
So, Fagin is he owes money to a loan shark slash industrialist named Sykes. Mr. Fagin, sorry. Now I lent you money, and I don't see it. Do you know what happens when I don't see my money, Fagin? People get hurt. People like you get hurt. He is choking Fagin with his car window. Like, he rolls the car window up while Fagin has his head sticking into the car. It is, like, jamming into his throat, choking him. He then blows cigar or cigarette smoke into his eyes, and his eyes are watering. It's very grotesque. Yeah. And very, like, creepy. So, like, yeah, Sykes is a scary, large man. He's he's like a... He's like a... The kingpin type character. Yeah, he's so uh, yeah, very much so. Will, yeah. Wilson Fisk here. Either. Do you know who plays Sykes? Yes. Drink your orange juice, Jimmy. <laughs> Try some new minute made orange tangerine. It's got calcium. Then I'm not drinking it. Oh no, it's sweet. You'll like it. I don't believe you. Well then who would you believe? I don't know, Robert Loja. Robert Loja. Whoa, Robert Loja. Billy, your mother's right. New Minute Maid orange tangerine tastes great. And it's got as much calcium as milk. If you say so, Mr. Loja. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry. Every time Robert Loja comes up, you have to you have to bring up Minute Maid orange tangerine. Jimmy. It's got more calcium than milk. Oh. And it tastes great. Does it now? Yeah. Can I just take a second to say the child actor in that? I would have smacked him if my he was my kid. Drink your orange juice. I don't want to. Like, excuse me, what is that tone? Uh, who are you hanging out with, sir? But Robert, uh. Robert Loja, he respects because Robert Loja, like Sykes, doesn't take no lip. <laughs> also, yeah, either. Listen up. If you're going to be a loan shark, dead men can't pay their debts. Don't. Just break a leg or a finger. Maybe not that. They also can't get you money if you break, like, a walking instrument. Break a couple fingers. They're going to get you your money. Yeah. Take a bat to their car or to their place of residence. All of this is said in joking. Please don't do any <laughs> of those things. So that's kind of like the core cast. There's a few other characters we'll introduce a little later. Wrestling um, Butler. Yeah. No, I, we'll get to them. We'll get to them. Doberman uh, 1 and 2. <laughs> we'll, we'll get to them. Um, the... the re- so, the main plot is Oliver's an orphan cat who befriends these dogs and goes on kind of some misadventures. Mm. Uh, try, you know, hopefully helps Fagin repair, repay money to the sleaze bag, even though it's like, why should we care? Yeah. It's because it's cause there's talking dogs in it. That's why we care. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's what a friend of mine, I told him we watched this movie, and he's like, oh, I love that movie. I was like, it sucks. And he's like, and I, I, he was like, why does it suck? And I explained, it was like, there are like these terrible characters like Fagin that I'm like why should I care about this person he's a bum Mm -hmm. who owes money to a guy and he's like you know what Rodney do you know why you should care because there's talking dogs in it (laughs) (laughs) (sighs) but before that I want to talk about the history of this movie Um, and because this is our first movie released by Walt Disney Feature Animation I gotta talk about the history of Walt Disney feature animation. Tuck in kids, you got a beer? Uh, If you're of age? (laughs) Strap strap in kids, this is gonna be a journey. This is is fun to me. And also because I don't have a whole lot to say about the movie. That's fair. Yeah. Alright. Right on. So, Walt Disney feature animation, now called Walt Disney Animated Studios, was founded in 1923 by uh, by brothers Walt and Roy Disney. One of those brothers got got the company named after him. Oh. 
Disney established itself as a leader in animation after the success of its Mickey Mouse cartoons and the success of 1937's Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, the first feature-length cell-animated film of all time. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) Don't patronize me. (laughs) Drink your orange juice, kid. We all know the story from there. For the next half century, Disney released a string of classic animated films like Pinocchio or Cinderella, Peter Pan, 101 Dalmatians. Those are good, right? I mean, one of them was. Hey. <laughs> um, and then they expanded into other ventures, um, such as live action productions and Disneyland in 1955. Mm. So, Walt Disney, the what man. What was Disneyland in 1955? Huh? Was it just attractions? There wasn't, like, roller coasters. It, 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 was, it was, like, half county fair, half, like, zoo. Isn't a county fair just a zoo? Yeah, it, it was <laughs> It was more or less just a county fair. I've never been to a county fair. Yes, you have. No. We, we went to a county fair together. Oh, it's into, yeah, we did. You're right. There was there was a derby breaking cars. We we wanted Felicia Destruction to win. Destruction derby. Destruction derby. No, it was but, loud and smelly. Yeah, no. But fun. <laughs> I'm sure Disneyland was also loud and smelly at the time. Mm. In certain parts, it still is. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, Walt Disney, the man, passed away in 1966. Um... There had been a reduced focus on the company's animated features division uh, since about the mid-50s, but Walt's, Walt's death only exasperated the decline. Although, All in all, though, Disney's animated output from the 60s and the 70s were financially and crit- critically successful. Mm. So it's like, people like to talk about those like, oh, those were the dark years. That was the decline. It's like, oh, no, they, they still did pretty well. Mm-hmm. I think some of those movies stuck, like 101 Dalmatians, but some of those movies just kind of fell to the wayside, like Aristocats, Robin Hood. People still like those things, but, I, you know. <laughs> Excuse me. Aristocrats is a classic and should always be loved. Also, Sword I didn't realize that uh, 101 Dimensions was in the 60s. I also didn't realize that uh, Aristocrats was. Yeah, no, those are 70s, I think. Oh. Yeah. 60s and 70s. Yeah. Still. Yeah. Again, that thing. That that, that's saying. the thing about Disney timeless. It's like you never know. Yeah. Like as a Which kid, is why they keep taking them yeah, out of exactly. the time capsule. It's 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 garage. a gosh. It's it's a brilliant ploy. It really is. <laughs> it's let's do that. <laughs> so the problems really started in 1979 when a certain animator named Don Bluth, who we talked about in our 1986 movie episode where we talked about American Tale, and we might um, talk about him next year too. Maybe. Um, he and a group of other disgruntled animators quit Disney and founded a new company citing stagnation in Disney's animation studio division. Um, the departure delayed Disney's first feature of the 1980s, The Fox and the Hound, uh, which ended up being a success at the box office, but it received mid- a mixed critical reception. Fox and the Hound, it's fine. I only remember one thing from Fox and the Hound, and it's probably because as a kid I played Disney Seen It, and I was okay. just like, Aroo! Yeah. Aroo! <laughs> That's the podcast now. <laughs> um, okay, so it's like Fox and the Hounds come out. Disney just has a bunch of problems from that from that point, right? It's mm-hmm. like they they try to produce a bunch of movies, like including Roger Rabbit, right? Mm-hmm. It's like they're they're just throwing everything at the wall, to see what sticks. At the very top, there was a messy corporate power struggle going on. Okay, you've got Walt's nephew Roy E. Disney, the son of. Roy Disney, the, mm-hmm. the Walt's brother. Right, right. Attempting to oust President and CEO Ron Miller, who was Walt's son-in-law. Okay. So they're cousins, or cousins-in-law, yes. right? And they are, like, Chibble. wrestling for the ideological, like, 
purity of the company, oh. right? Both men thought this is what Walt would want. No, no, this is what Walt would want, mm. right? It's like, did you agree with either one of them? I, it's it's hard to say. It's like from what I could understand, because I can't really find a whole lot of information on Ron Miller. I've heard that from people who worked under him, he wasn't the best leader, mm. like manager. Yeah. So maybe as like from a business perspective, he wasn't the best person to be president and CEO. But I've heard also accounts that he had like Walt's spirit of like ingenuity. Like he thought outside the box. So I, I, I heard that he was the guy who okayed the Roger Rabbit project. Oh, okay. So like I think he was more of like a, an idea guy. Mm. But you need a business guy. Yeah. And then Roy E. Disney was like a purist. Like that's the thing. I see value in both of their things. Yeah. But they, if only they had come together. Yeah, but Roy was cutthroat. He quit Disney. Or he, he sorry, he stepped down from Disney's uh, board of directors, right? And that got a lot of press. They're like, oh, the, the, we don't have a Disney on the on the board of directors? This is, this is crazy, hmm. right? And so Roy took that publicity and turned it into something he called the Save Disney campaign. Oh. Which basically pressured the board of directors to fire Miller in 1984 and bring in ex-Paramount uh, head Michael Eisner as CEO, mm. param- another Paramount like executive, Frank Mills, as president, and then they brought along their own uh, executive named Jeffrey Katzenberg as the head of the film division. So we all know Jeffrey Katzenberg, petty a-hole. <laughs> now, um, just to kind of sell who these people are, um, I have a quote from Michael Eisner, and this was this was in 2002, or sorry, 2003. So it's it's not during the 80s, but I think it kind of does a good job to explain the kind of person and the kind of philosophy that Michael Eisner has. Mm. And he said, "We have no obligation to make history. We have no obligation to make art. We have no obligation to make a statement. To make money is our only objective." Well, and then he says, "Like if we end up doing those other things on top of that, that's great." Money is the obligation. So basically, like, this This was... This is why Disney is currently our overlord. This was seen as, like, Hollywood invading Disney, right? The Hollywood machine has invaded Disney. They're gonna... They're gonna start churning... You know, they they started churning out productions. That's the thing. Huh? Yeah. I mean... (laughs) <laughs> so that was 1984. Disney, because animation takes so long, they already had a bunch of projects in the pipeline, mm. right? Like Black Cauldron was already being made when Eisner and Katzenberg and, and, and Miller, sorry, not Miller, uh, Mills came in. They saw that it was like struggling, but they're like, it's already being made. Let's just get it out. And, and mm. you know, let, let's let's keep, you know, trucking, keep it, keep it trucking. Oh. So the Black Cauldron ended up being a financial and a critical disaster. <laughs> um, and it's been cited as, quote, rock bottom for the studio. I think that was Katzenberg's quote. <laughs> Katzenberg called it rock bottom for him. <laughs> it was so bad that Eisner initially considered shutting down Disney's animated features division altogether. Wow. And just said, let's just focus on TV, live action, because they had that, that mermaid movie. What's that mermaid Splash. movie? Splash. Splash mm-hmm. had come out and it was a big success for Disney. <laughs> yeah. And so they were like... This is working. Let's just do live action. Screw cartoons. Which is where we are in 2020. <laughs> yeah. And uh, luckily, Roy Disney, who was still there, said, no, no, I'll step in. I'll take over the feature animation. We'll be good, right? But the problem is I think Roy was kind of like overworked. Mm. So they're like, you need to bring someone in to help you, right? And so he brought in a little man named Peter Schneider. 
Uh, Here's the thing. Yeah. You said little man, then said Peter, and I heard Dinklage, and I was very offended. No. <laughs> Peter Schneider is a little man. Um, I have a quote from him, and this is an actual audio quote. Um, the kind of person that Peter Schneider was. And he, this is them talking about the directors of Oliver and Company, actually. When I first got there, Oliver and Company was being made. It had two directors. This is Rick Rich. Hello. This is George Scribner. I fired Rick Rich, who was belligerent to me, and kept George Scribner, who sucked up to me. It seemed like the right decision at the time. People who like you get ahead. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah. Um, so that, com- that comes from the documentary uh, Waking Sleeping Beauty, which is uh, on Disney Plus right now. You should definitely watch it. It's, it's great. Um, basically, like... That's who was running Disney at the time. Like, cutthroat business people. Executives. Yeah. Right? Um, they, no-nonsense people, right? The, the Even the waking, sleeping, beauty thing. Um, Jeffrey Katzenberg, I guess, went on TV and made that quote. They're like, oh, you're you're heading the film division. What What's your plan? We're going to wake up Sleeping Beauty. And that pissed off all the animators. They're like, what are you talking about? Sleeping Beauty never went to sleep. You know, it's like, she's she's alive and well right here. The Disney magic is just fine. And it's like, no, no, it's not. So in many ways, it was like a shock to the system, mm-hmm. which was good because it kind of shook up the animators and like basically put them on edge. Yeah. Because maybe they were like complacent and they needed a shakeup. That's fair. But it, I don't know. It's very uncertain. So it's like, it all worked out, you know, because in the, the end, yeah. you don't know if it was. Yeah. I'm sure it was a scary time. Yeah. So the first the first movie released under the, the leadership of everybody was The Great Mouse Detective in 1986, which, while still financially successful, was smashed by Don Bluth's American Tale. Trash movie. I love you, Donald Bluth. Just not that movie. It's just, that's just, ugh. Anyway, go and listen to our yeah. podcast of that year, or don't. <laughs> so anyway, it was like, it was just financial enough for Katzenberg to say, okay, we can continue with this, this cartoon thing. But right. you got to do better, kids. Right, but it oh basically gosh. gave a bu- everybody kind of like a kick in the butt to like do better and and it's like overcome Don Bluth and like, Steven Spielberg. Your kid came home with an A and you're like an A minus, and you're like, excuse me, minus. Right. You were already almost there. Get the rest of it, okay? <laughs> How did the animators feel about him? Who Jeffrey Katzenberg? Yeah. Oh, they hated him. Mm. They hated Peter Schrein- uh, Peter Schneider. They hated uh, Jeffrey Katzenberg. Um, in in Waking Sleeping Beauty, like they talk about, like the best thing to get back at a bad boss is basically create a caricature, draw mm. caricatures. So they're all animators. So they're just drawing silly pictures of these people <laughs> and making fun of them. There's a there's a funny story uh, when the Great Mouse Detective came out. Um, they wanted to call it Je- else, Jeffrey right? Katzenberg. So the Great Mouse Detective is based on a book called Basil of Baker Street, uh-huh. right? The marketing department at Jeffrey Katzenberg says, that's not a good name. Kids don't want to see a movie called Basil of Baker Street. Let's call it The Great Mouse Detective because that's what it's called. That's what it is. It is. So someone created a fake memo in Jeffrey Katzenberg's name saying, okay, we're going to rename all of Disney's classics. Uh, s- uh, Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs is now going to be called A what Young Woman Lives with... S- Seven small men. <laughs> like, just a bunch of dumb... Just, like, right on the nose yeah. kind of stuff. Mm. Little deer watches mom die. <laughs> stuff like that. And that... Jeffrey Katzenberg was not amused. Mm, he should have been. That's so clever. Yeah. So, yeah, the, the animators, needless to say, were not happy with all this stuff going on. But, hey, they've got creative pride. They're going to make the best movie they, they want to make. Yeah. Right? Uh, that brings us to Oliver and Company. 
I guess it was the best I they mean, could okay, do. I mean, okay, if you had to choose one movie and you had to watch it all day, Oliver and Company or Black Cauldron? Ooh, yeah, Oliver and Company. Yeah, yeah. So, hey, it's better than, it's better than Rock Bottom. <laughs> I will say that. So, uh, what, what's better than Rock Bottom? Does The Rock have a different move? Uh, the People's Elbow? <laughs> no. Oliver and Company is The People's Elbow of the 1980s. <laughs> All right, so uh, the film's inception came from a high-profile series of pitch meetings held in 1985, which were infamously known as The Gong Show. (laughs) Basically, it was like people had to knock on Michael Eisner's door, walk in, pitch him an idea, and he would basically, like the TV show The Gong Show, say yes or no, right? And that's it. So The Gong Show produced um, a few things. There was a fairy tale adaptation of The Little Mermaid. Uh And... Quote, Treasure Island in Space. Oh. Yeah, Treasure, Treasure Planet. Planet. Yeah, that movie didn't get made for 20 years. But oh, hey, 1985 was... is when they okayed the idea. Wow. Yeah. And amongst those ideas, the meeting saw a proposal for an adaptation of Charles Dixon, Charles Dickens' Oliver Twist, but with dogs. <laughs> but with dogs. Yep. <laughs> um, I just want to pitch everything. Like, it, okay, hey, just hear me out. It's Back to the Future, but... With horses. <laughs> <laughs> it's Hamlet, but with lions. <laughs> hey! That one actually works. <laughs> that really happened. Oh. It's The Great Escape, but with chickens. Hey, that's another one. <laughs> oh, sorry. Yeah. I'm, I'm just like trying to think of more, but it's fine. <laughs> okay. Um, so, um, it, it turns out that Jeffrey Katzenberg actually had wanted to produce a live-action adaptation of the musical Oliver. <laughs> um, while he was at Paramount, so he signed off on the project. He's like, let's do it. And, uh... Got it done. Yep. And as, as we talked about, it, had originally, it originally had two directors, and one was fired because he was belligerent to Peter Schneider. <laughs> oh, man. That's hilarious. Okay, so, Oliver and Company. The movie. So, let's get... Let's hear from the Dodger. Let's, let's, let's help us get back into the mood here, Dodger. But wait! Wait, you're not being... There's a tourist, kid. Consider it a free lesson in street savoir faire from New York's coolest quadruped. That's New York coolest City's coolest quadruped. quadruped. All right, so this movie's based on Oliver Twist, the novel. Disclaimer, I've never read Charles Dickens' uh, Oliver Twist. Me neither. But I do have an English degree. <laughs> and I've read my fair share of Dickens. So, like, I, I kind of, like, I, I know the territory. Let me put it that way. Okay. Um, I did a little bit of research. I looked at Schmoop, <laughs> Cliff Notes. Oh, okay. I think Cliff Notes became Schmoop. <laughs> what is sh- Oh, wow. <laughs> no, I, I, I'm pretty because sure Because you that- just Googled it and you're like, okay. Yeah, yeah. Like, I, I, like as you would. It's like, you go look up the Wikipedia synopsis, you look up yeah. uh, 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 Cliff Notes. But I think what was once Cliff Notes is now called Schmoop. Schmoop. It's like goop. <laughs> Oh, gosh. It's this millennial... Goop will be our TV show of 2019. Gosh, no. No goop. Okay, anyway. So, um, I kind of want to run through the plot of Oliver and Company and, you know, compare it to the plot of Oliver Twist. Mm. Okay? So, Oliver Twist or The Parish Boy's Progress. (laughs) That was his alternate title. The Parish Boy's Progress? Yep. Hmm. Which was uh, Charles Dickens' second novel... um, Sorry, published 1937 to 1939 as a serial. The story centers around an orphan boy named Oliver Twist, born in a workhouse and sold into apprenticeship, sold into an apprenticeship, I can't even say that. Sold into an apprenticeship. Thank you. With an undertaker. Child trafficking? (laughs) 
It's just like uh, American Tail. Oh, fair. It's the same. It's the same. Like, yeah. I mean, it was a thing. It yeah. was a thing. Yeah, it's the same time period. So anyway, Oliver Twist. Um, the first eight chapters of the novel involve Oliver Twist kind of living in his like birth home, right? Mm. What he, year is was it? Is this the book? 1837. I think okay. it was contemporary for its time. Okay. Um, so, all, so yeah, the first eight chapters is just Oliver Twist, like, growing up an orphan. Mm-hmm. Living with this undertaker, doing work, um, being exploited for his labor, as was the custom at the time. Yeah. <laughs> um, that basically translates to one musical number yeah. for, for Oliver and company. Um, Oliver the cat. <laughs> um is orphaned because he's kind of like in a box, right? Yeah, yeah. Like all his other brothers and sisters are picked by other people, and he's just chilling in this box. They were they were for sale at first, and then it dwindles down, and then it's just free. Take a cat. I don't want it in my house. And uh, Oliver was not taken, and he gets caught up in the rain. He has to you know sleep on a tire. And... He runs away from a big old dog, and 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 then he meets Dodger. Right. That's literally four minutes of screen time, right? For what was originally eight chapters of a book. Oliver Twist, after escaping from his, you know, apprenticeship, uh, travels to London where he meets a, a, a member of a, a gang of juvenile pickpockets named the artful Dodger. Huh? Yeah. So it's like his nickname. That's yeah. his, like, he's, I, I, he has, that a, makes sense. yeah, he has a real name, but artful Dodger is what he's known mm. as in the book. You know, it's like, uh, the good young gentleman in, yeah. in, uh, great expectations. So the artful Dodger, he's part of this gang led by an elderly criminal named Fagan. So, oh. so in addition to being a very racist Jewish stereotype, Fagan l- is literally grooming young boys to become pickpockets oh. and like bring him money. And like, from what I understand, Fagin isn't even poor in the novel. He's like a pretty well-off dude. And he like, you know, has a compulsion for crime. Mm. So he like, you know, leads like those these... rich people who shoplift. Yeah, it, yeah, like Winona Ryder, <laughs> free Winona. <laughs> uh, that yeah, and and that's how we translate to this gang of dogs mm. who are owned by a bum named Fagin. But that's the thing. It's like in the movie, Fagin's a loser. He's he's just. He's just a loser. Yeah, he's a loser. <laughs> he just can't sit with us. So Oliver Twist in the book goes out and like basically joins the gang. Mm-hmm. He and the Artful Dodger go out and like Oliver learns the way of the pickpocket, right? Right. They at one point decide that they're going to steal from a like a, a rich man named Mr. Brownlow. This is kind of similar to what we see in Oliver and Company. Uh... Oliver and the dogs, they're, they're sent out Bay Fagan one day in order to repay the debts, right? Because that's another thing. It, this is not in the, the book whatsoever, but in the movie Oliver and Company, Fagan has three days to make up the money to pay back his, his, his loan shark. Three, not nine. Oh, please. Oh, please. Oh, please. Three sunrises. Three sunsets. Three days. Fagan. Three sunrises, three sunsets, three days, three, 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 this is nine. Nine? No, Fagin. Three. Three. <laughs> I like, it's like, no, Fagin. Three. Don't be stupid. Yeah. So, yeah, um, so he sends the dogs out to go steal things for him so that he can, he can pay him back. Hopefully pawn yeah. it. 
Yeah, I mean, we see him at a pawn shop trying to sell a watch, and it's yeah. not working for him. But anyway, um, in the book, that that's not how it works. It's just Fagin is a bad person mm. uh, who sends boys out to pickpocket yeah. because that's the thing he does. Yeah. Um, so in the book, they try to steal from this old man named Mr. Brownlow. The the it's kind of botched, right? But Mr. Brownlow is able to clear Oliver's name and then take him in and adopt him himself. Oh. So. Thanks, Mr. Moneybags. Yeah, he's, he's Uncle Scrooge. <laughs> <laughs> um, how that works in the movie is a little different. Yeah. So, in Oliver and Company, Oliver takes part in kind of a similar scam. They're trying to steal... I don't know. What are they even doing? Um, so... They were trying... I don't know what they were trying... They got the butler out of the car. Yeah, they... they- were they trying to? He was, and 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 Cheech was trying to hotwire the car. They were just gonna steal a limo, I guess. So like they they create this like grand uh, con con to basically stop a limousine um, in order to get inside, hotwire it, and steal it. Yeah, dogs. Yeah, and so the 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 limousine is owned by. Uh, um, like Emily, a, Penny, Penny's Jen, family. Jenny, Jenny. So it's it's. You got, <laughs> I literally only knew the name Oliver. <laughs> <laughs> Oliver is the only name I got right. Yeah. So anyway, the, the the limousine is actually it's driven by Winston, a butler, and he works for a family, and the little girl in the family is named Jenny. <laughs> this is so complicated. I'm just Jenny from the block. I see you met Oliver. Isn't he cute? I've got great news. Mom and Dad just said I could keep him. I'm sure you two are going to be the best of friends. That's I Jenny. forgot about that last character, um, Powderpuff Puppy. We'll get to her in a second. <laughs> uh, because that's this Jeanette. is because this is basically where the similarities between Oliver Twist and Oliver and Company completely Derail. go. Yeah, completely gone. So Oliver and Company, just like an Oliver Twist, there's a botched robbery. Oliver ends up getting taken in by a kind soul. Um, in Oliver and Company, he's taken in by Jenny to live in her mansion. And for, I, I even looked it up. There is a character named Sykes in Oliver Twist, but he's not a loan shark. He's he's not, tr- from what I understand, he's not trying to blackmail Fagin. He was small... trained by Fagin. Huh. But he's just like... Graduated. More, more evil. Yeah. Mm. He like graduated, became more evil, and becomes the antagonist in the book. Weird. So they just took his name and applied him to a completely new character for the movie. Hmm. Yeah. But that's it for, for Oliver... But you had another character you wanted to talk about. Pom-pom puffy Jeanette? I think it's Jeanette. Georgette. Dang it! So Jenny <laughs> owns a dog. She's like a prize show dog named Georgette. Hello. Hello. I um, hope you won't think me rude, but do you happen to know out of whose bowl you're eating? Yours? Ooh, <laughs> aren't you a clever kitty? And do you have any idea whose home this is? I thought it was Jenny's. Well, it may be Jenny's house, but everything from the doorknobs down is mine! That's uh, Georgette, voiced by Bette Midler. (laughs) Um, Doing a great job, to be honest. Yeah, yeah, I hate this character. She bugs me. Um, I find her despicable. But Bette Miller does a great job. Yeah. She's she's hamming it up. She's perfect. Yeah. I was just thinking about how uh, both of our movies this year, I'm just realizing right now, are adaptions. 
of yeah. books yeah. that have not poorly done, but heavily, very different. Heavily revised. Heavily revised. Yeah. Also, I was sitting here thinking, like, what other names could this have been called? And I got Catnapped and Kidnapped, which we'll get to that plot point. Or Kitty in the Big City. Kitty in the Big City Committee. <laughs> <laughs> With the committee! Yay! But if it was that name, then I probably wouldn't have even remembered Oliver. Kitty by committee. Kitty by committee. Oh, man. Um. So, um, all this... All right, right. So this is the main... The, the thing that we keep skirting around, the plot, supposedly, uh, is that um, Oliver gets picked up by Jenny, and Jenny's like, I'm going to keep you. Mom and Dad say yes. And then the home dogs, homie, the posse, the the artful dogers gang, come and, unres- and rescue... Unrescue. <laughs> and rescue Oliver. Uh, Jeanette, G- Georgette... Georgette basically shoves the cat like go take him get him out of here and they go back to the docks and when they're at the docks oliver's like i liked it there i felt like home it's like boy you've been there one day less than a day you've been there three hours also jenny bought a lot of stuff for you in three hours she did uh personalized yeah including a personalized um neck collar that says her address solid gold uh, and it's important. This is an important plot point because uh, Fregan, Fegan, Fagan, Fagan, Fagan comes back and didn't have any money from anyone uh, and sees that this little cat has a collar now and it says Fifth Street, which means rich people because <laughs> New York. And so he says, I'm going to ransom the cat because he's a very smart man. And if you don't bring the money... You'll never see your cat again. Oh no. Georgette, something terrible has happened. They've kidnapped Oliver. It's not in the book. <laughs> That's not in the book. Such poor, sad girl. So, um... This kind of transitions into my next point, actually. Because, uh, like, the, the kidnapped Oliver thing was, like, Fagin's stupid idea. Mm-hmm. He, he literally expected a very rich family to, like, pay out a lot of money for a cat for a they cat. had a day right um turns out that sykes had bigger plans he thinks yeah yeah bring the little girl to the have the little girl comes to the docks for the cat i'll just kidnap the girl yep because he's terrible <laughs> so he, he kidnaps jenny and then tries to ransom her for the money so he's the real mastermind here yes <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's funny, Mr. Winston. But I don't think you really appreciate the situation. Somebody could get hurt. And he's yep, he's saying, Give Talk- me give me that money or I will hurt your your daughter. Not even daughter. I think that wasn't he talking to He's talking to, to the- Winston. I will I will talk to your client. Yeah. I also okay. Your boss's daughter. I was like, how did this little girl sneak out of the house at dark? He was probably watching wrestling. <laughs> he does watch a lot of wrestling in this movie. Uh, um, but anyway, what I wanted to say was like this movie gets very dark, and yeah. we've been kind of like tracing the darkness of the '80s, right? I mm-hmm. feel like the late '80s, late '80s entertainment had a darker edge to it. Yeah, um, we saw it in music with yeah, like yeah. you know, good old Michael Jackson. He went bad. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we talked about it with uh, Guns and Roses. Yeah, like we were, we talked about it like with a lot of the like how 
metal was getting back to its like darker, harder roots. Yeah, and so anyway, um, so and especially Guns N' Roses' de- appetite, de- appetite for destruction, right? Yeah. Like they were really um, talkative. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, what I'm what I'm going to say is like this movie has that Brave Little Toaster. Yeah, Brave Little Toaster is also really dark. Yeah. yeah. Um, it, it, I feel like this movie carried that with it, right? It's like. The the villain is literally a a murderous kidnapping just guy yeah. New York industrialist yeah um he's he is a real person in the real world like yeah. um, like this is there's not fantasy yeah um it's it's not not at all it's very realistic yeah I, I, not realistic you know what I mean no like, no I am very sure there are it's rooted just, in reality yeah where it's like yeah this man is making death threats uh insisting on money he is uh, kidnapping children kidnapping children uh. Uh, blackmailing literally sicking his guard dogs on a person yep um to art tear him apart dodger almost dies yeah. after getting sicked on by his dobermans yeah he like steps in front of fagin to protect him and he just gets torn like mm. yeah um that that's that's really it just hey this movie is it has it has a lot of darkness in it yeah um it's imposing even even just like how New York is depicted, like yeah. as as a city. I think like typically when you see movies uh, with New York in them, it's not necessarily this side. But like you start off like, oh, it's a beautiful like city line, and then you're in a box with a cat, and you're only in that box, and it gets like danker and dirtier, and the box gets more and more like torn down. Then it's raining, and it's there. The cat is cast out, and we watch him run through alleyways and on streets where people are flooding by him, not giving a care. One person, a small child is like, kitty. And the mom's like, no, and drags him away. And there's an angry man selling hot dogs. Oh, I, got, and- I got a clip from that hot dog, man. Come on, folks, step right up. Get Very ugly character, dogs. too. The best hot dogs in New York. Um, th- that's the thing about, like, depictions of New York in the 80s. From what I understand, like, New York was not a very good place in the 80s. Mm. Like, it was pretty dirty and gross. Um, Hell's Kitchen is called Hell's Kitchen for a reason. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, it, it, you have that class, you know, you have like the classic images of like homeless people like warming themselves up with like trash can yeah, fires yeah, yeah. and like dudes selling watches out of their coats, <laughs> right? Yes. Th- those are classic 80, 80s New York tropes because mm-hmm. 80s, 80s New York was a crime ridden place. Yeah. Um, I just, I'm thinking of uh, the, this is going to be my runner up for 1988, but coming to America. Mm. Is also based in New York in 1988, and it's also very dirty and weird and gross and, yeah. and dangerous. Yeah, um, but I think like it's interesting because they also show the side like when you see Jenny and they're going through the Central Park and yada yada yada. You get to see like ah, but for the select few, there is grandeur. Yeah, Talk, there are a few technical things on how they were able to create New York for this movie. Mm. Uh, one. This movie made heavy use of 3D animation. It's like yeah, true. Um, there was 3D animation in a few animated movies before this, right? Um, Great Mouse Detective used 3D animation. American Tail used 3D animation. Even uh, we even saw it in. Labyrinth? I think that, no, huh? Labyrinth. Lab- Labyrinth did yeah, but that wasn't a live action movie. Oh, yeah. But yeah, no. Um, this movie, I have a list here. Um, skyscrapers, taxi cabs, trains, Fagin's scooter. <laughs> Sykes's car, mm. subway, subway, like like full subway stations, construction yeah. elements. Those were all 3D animated. Basically, it was like they created a 3D object in a computer. 
and then cell shaded it to make it look animated and that was in the movie mm-hmm. and it was like to, you can you can definitely tell now <laughs> i'm not saying they have an age well because they look great like mm-hmm. like i i kind of i like that cell shaded 3d look yeah it reminds me of video games <laughs> it's a very video game look but I, hey i thought it was effective in creating a new york because yeah. you got to create a bunch of buildings uh that's probably the best way to do it yeah um also they wanted new york to look realistic and when you think of Name one location in New York, like the most famous location in New York, heart of the city. Where did we go? We went there once. It was so crowded that we wanted to leave immediately. <laughs> Are you, you can't remember it? Or? No, I'm being mean. <laughs> um, Madison Square Garden? No. Times Square. Times Square Garden. I think Madison Square Garden's close by. But yeah, Times Square. They needed to depict Times Square. And what is Times Square full of? Advertisements. Advertisements. <laughs> so apparently Disney included real world advertisements because they wanted it to look realistic. Mm. I, I've heard criticisms that this movie was full of product placement. The product placement wasn't there because Disney wanted to make money. It was there because they wanted to make it look realistic. Mm-hmm. If you don't, like, that's the thing. If you see a New York without ads, you're not seeing New York, which is unfortunate. Does that mean that? Does that mean like Coca Cola and whatnot paid Disney to have their stuff there, or did they just put it there for free? That's the thing. I, I would. Ass- that's the thing. I'm not sure how copyright with like yeah. logos and stuff works. I would assume they reached out to these companies and asked for permission. Mm-hmm. But they 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 were adamant. They did not do this for paid product placement. They did it for realism. So uh. you had Kodak, Sony, Coke, Tab. <laughs> give me a tab. Can't give you a tab unless you order something. <laughs> McDonald's, Yamaha, Ryder, USA Today, it's all there. Yeah. And it's all New York. <laughs> huh. That's it. So that is a really interesting thing because like when I think of something like Zootopia, where it also had a bunch of ads and stuff, they just like mocked them, right? Like, yeah. Not mocked, but you know what I mean. Like, parody. Parody. Parody them. Yeah. Oh, okay. That, that's it for Oliver and Company, really. Like yeah. <laughs> the movie's like, it's like whatever. Would you recommend it, I guess? I mean, sure. If you have kids under the age of 13 and you you, you can't put um, Roger Rabbit on. <laughs> yeah, here's the deal. There are better talking dog movies out there. As yeah, look who's talking Di- now. It's like, even from Disney, there's better talking dog movies. Like, I'd, I'd, I'd recommend Fox and the Hound over this. Mm. I'd recommend Robin Hood over this. Bolt? I'd recommend Bolt over this. <laughs> I'd recommend uh, a Lady and the Tramp over uh, this. Aristocrats? Yeah, no, this. They're they're of similar quality. <laughs> I will punch you with my foot. But yeah, I, I I wouldn't recommend it. I'd say seek out something better for your yeah, kids. Yeah, I mean, like I'm not gonna watch it if I like am scrolling through stuff and like, oh, what should I? Yeah, yeah. Let's, listen not... to listen to the Billy Joel song. But I don't find it offensive. <laughs> All right, so Oliver and Company, it released the same weekend as Don Bluth's The Land Before Time. I think that was a Don Bluth call. He liked to go head to head. The first Land Before Time? Yeah, the first mm. one. I, I recommend that over Yes, Oliver it's not even a full movie length. But it's better. Yeah. Um, while Oliver topped the U.S. box office, which Disney in their Waking Sleeping Beauty documentary was quick to point out. Like, <laughs> we won the U.S. Uh, the Land Before Time was more financially successful worldwide and received a better critical reception. Mm. I was, like, looking it up. Like, most of the um, reviews for Oliver and Company were, like, it's fine, it's not offensive, but there's better stuff out there, yeah. right? Uh, Gene Siskel of Siskel and Ebert fame said, uh, he gave the film a thumbs down saying, when you measure this film to the company's legacy of Klaxus, it just doesn't match up. 
the story is too fragmented, too convoluted, too calculated for Bette Midler, Billy Joel crowd, as well as for little kids. <laughs> so it's just like, you know, it's just in the middle. In the middle? Yeah. It's neither hot nor cold. <laughs> so you spit it out of your mouth. Yeah. Animation historian Charles Solomon wrote a favorable view concluding that the cartoon... That the, quote, cartoon action will delight young children while older ones who usually reject animation as kid stuff will enjoy the rock songs and the hip characters, especially the brash Tito. I'm like, eh, I don't, I don't know if I agree with that one. <laughs> some, of Disney's an- some of Disney's animators even didn't like it. Mm. <laughs> they called it, a, quote, another talking dog and cat movie. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing special about it. You wanted to wake Sleeping yeah. Beauty and this is what you're making? Just wait. Just wait one more year. They'll wake up that sleeping year. <laughs> um, however, there there was some like some award. There was one award. Why should I worry? The, An award. Yeah. Why should I worry? The Billy Joel song uh, was nominated for a Golden Globe for best original song. Well deserved. It was nominated. Did it win? No. Okay. Well. But best part of the movie is that song. <laughs> we'll close with it. Oliver Company had surprisingly little multimedia media presence. Like. Even in the 1980s? Like, uh, like there wasn't any, any uh, McDonald's toys? That, that, that was going to say, other than a McDonald's toy line and mm. a crappy PC game in 1989. Mm. Um, when the movie was re-released in 96, and I remember these, there was a line of kids' meal toys at Burger King. Oh. I remember those. Upgraded to the king. Yeah. <laughs> Got a big kids' meal, get a Oliver toy. The legacy of Walt Disney feature animation is a story for a different day. Uh, but let's talk about the director, uh, the actual credited director of uh, Oliver and Company. Wait, are we actually going to have a different day that we're going to talk about the legacy of? Yeah, because uh, because you're a Disney boy. I'm a Disney boy. <laughs> uh, Rich Scribner, the director, after Oliver and Company, he directed uh, Disney's The Prince and the Popper, the mm. Mickey Mouse one. Okay. Um, and then went on to contribute to other Disney features in a minor role. He produced Walt Disney World show Mickey's Philhar Magic. It's like a play on Philharmonic. Oh, I don't know what Philharmonic is. It's uh, like classical music. Oh. Um, And he's worked as an animation contractor for Walt Disney Imagineering. Uh, He's also an accomplished oil painter. You can go look up his works online. Um, That's pretty cool. That's Oliver and Company. That's all of it. We're done. (laughs) Who who won? You won. I won? Yeah, I don't even need to. There's no argument to be had. You won. Roger Rabbit's way better than this. A <laughs> winner! Man, uh, I just keep racking up all the points. Yeah, you are. I just had a better taste as a human. You, you have better 80s taste. <laughs> runners up. Let's talk runners up. Okay. Um. All right. Runners up. For you, Rodney, my dear, was, as you said before, Coming to America. Yep. Great movie. Mm. I love that movie. And the first Die Hard. Uh, one the the... The second no. best action film ever made. The, the best action film ever <laughs> the made. The second best. You, you want, who do you, what do you think is the Spy best? Spy Kids 2. You're wrong. <laughs> You're wrong. You're wrong. <laughs> I, go watch Die Hard. Go watch Spy Kids 2. No. What are your runners up? <laughs> um, my runners up for the year of 1988 are Beetlejuice. It's all right. It's great. It's all right. Like, think about all the art. Think about think I, about I the like, mini. I like the production design. Yeah, yeah. it's here's story wise. You're like, whatever. Yeah, so it's like whatever. It's, like, like it's, whatever. it's not bad. Like I'd watch it. It's fine. Oh, you'd. Oh. It's not my least favorite Tim Burton movie. Okay, I think it might be my only Tim Burton movie. 
Pee-wee's Big Adventure is better. <laughs> uh, I'm going to flip this table. Um, and then I also have Stand and Deliver, which I watched a lot because of Spanish class. I've never seen that movie. Oh. I've only seen the South Park parody. Oh. <laughs> and my last one is uh, My Neighbor Totoro, which I've watched three times, two of which I fell asleep through the middle of it. It took me three times to watch this movie all the way through. I like Totoro. I, I hate Sit your kids down and want, have them watch Totoro before you have them watch Oliver and Company. <laughs> That's true. That's very true. It's not my favorite of uh, Miyazaki's films. Yeah, but it's, it's just so quaint. It's great for little kids. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, mm, yeah. Yeah. It's got a cat bus. It's got a cat bus. It doesn't talk about death at all. <laughs> uh, it's a great movie, honestly. But yeah, so those were my runners-ups. I feel like I still would have beat you with runners-up. <laughs> Um, that's it, kids. Plugs? Yeah, what else you got going on? Um, if you want to hear my voice on other things, uh, I host a wrestling YouTube show called Keep Kayfabe. That's K-A-Y-F-A-B-E. We talk about the careers and characters of our favorite professional wrestlers. Uh, we are currently exploring the career of Eddie Guerrero, so if that sounds like something you're into, check us out. Uh, you can also follow me on Twitter at RobTheMaster, um, and you can read... If you like video games, I write for a website called ZeldaDungeon.net. We talk about The Legend of Zelda. It's good. It's good stuff. It's good stuff. <laughs> Sorry, I was just thinking about how we've been doing all of these episodes and you're still on Eddie Guerrero. I just want you to know if you haven't gone and watched it, one, watch it, but two, it's really in-depth. That's why. Yeah. That's why. Like, going, like, a year is one episode and one episode is a long episode. Yep. But watch it. That is not a deterrent if you're interested. And even if you're not interested in wrestling, it's fun anyway hype you up um uh if you would like to hear more of my voice or possibly see my face <laughs> uh i make videos and put them up on youtube uh on taming tells youtube where i tell stories and put them to video uh occasionally there is a song that i make my sister sing and i put that in a video as well um also uh i'm currently learning how to draw <laughs> Things that I have in my brain so that I can put them on shirts. <laughs> so if you want to check that out, there's nowhere to find them. Yep. And then uh, if you liked our show here, um, be sure to subscribe to us on iTunes. Leave us a review. Five-star review. Tell us you like the show. Follow us on Twitter at Media Made Show. At Media Made Show. Yeah. And if you're listening to this not as it comes out and you're a new listener and this is uh, this particular episode or any of the episodes that were posted six months a year or whatever ago still i totally want to see uh that people are still listening to this new listener so when you get to the end of this and you're like you know what i think jessica was the winner too because she was tweet us like i want to see that yeah and tell us what your movie was for 1988 yeah, go through that long list yeah <laughs> we haven't encouraged people to do it but definitely give it a try yeah especially with someone you love yeah um i mean you could do it alone but don't yeah <laughs> and that's that so yeah. we're going to close out with Why Should I Worry, Billy Joel from the soundtrack of uh, Oliver and Company. Legit. The high point of the movie. <laughs> and it's within the first 15 minutes. <laughs> uh, so with that, thank you. That, 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 that's all, folks. <laughs> Good night, kids.
Yeah, 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 that's all, folks. <laughs>